experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. That's it, it's up. All right, this is the first ever HD version of this podcast. Brian Stan, you are the guest. Wow. God damn it, you're the perfect guy for this first ever, <laughs> first ever Ustream HD version of the podcast. And uh, as it's gotten here, I just got a uh, an email. Um, I'm on Victor Conte's uh, email list. And, you know, Victor Conte, the Balco <laughs> guy, the guy who was suspended for getting all those guys on some undetectable steroids. And now he's some sort of a crusader against uh, performance-enhancing drugs. And he just sent me this thing. John Jones' testosterone levels are suspect, and it's saying that he's pro- he was probably on steroids. Coming off the biggest win of his UFC career, few would have expected John Jones to have the worst week of his life, blah, 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 drug test. Cocaine is the big one that everybody's been talking about. Uh, but the thing about the epitestosterone levels, that's uh, what they're saying. I mean, Conte has a you know a bunch of numbers and ratios and what's normal and what's not normal, but apparently this is a, this is an issue now too that people are talking about. Yeah, you know it's interesting. Kevin Ioli was uh, tweeting some stuff about that yesterday, and you know when when you take a look at at some of the things that taken place as well is there are some f- major flaws in the collection. Whoever was the sample collector, and I don't think the commission just wants to out them. Mm-hmm. Whoever did that because the first test was supposed to be for performance enhancements. And then it was actually recreational. It was never supposed to happen like that. So then when they tested him two weeks later after failing a recreational, then they tested him for performance enhancing. And I guess that's probably where they got his testosterone ratio. So, you know, when, when they get back his post-fight drug test, I mean, this, this will be real interesting. But when I talk to friends of mine that I have at USADA, I texted with them today. And, and USADA is as good as it gets. I mean, these guys don't miss. That stands for the U.S. Anti-Doping Doping Agency. Yeah, the federally, federal government-backed organization that does the Olympics. And, and they told me straight up, they said, look, yeah, there, there's definitely some indicators there. But they, they believe at right now it looks like there's some flaws in the collection. So who knows how this thing could possibly hold up in arbitration and if, if that collection process had anything to do with the flawed levels. There, there's a lot of details yet to be uncovered. So when the collection levels, what it's supposed to be, is supposed to be one guy, there's a chain of custody, he administers the test, takes the blood, and like handcuffs it to his fucking chain, wrist, right? Like, like yep. one of those nuclear bombs, and like the, the nuclear football thing, and they, they take it, and it's supposed to be like, this guy has it, he signs off on it, he sleeps with it, he doesn't go anywhere with it until it gets to that lab, and then from there... It's, they have a, a direct chain of custody. Exactly right. And, and the big key there, there, there's a few areas where it can be flawed. One, the collector. If the collector's not fully trained and, and, and you know aware, then the second part is what lab do they send it to? You know, I did confirm today Nevada had that urine sample sent to the WADA laboratory in Salt Lake City, which is, a, is, is one of the best, one of the two best in the country. You've know, you got Salt Lake and then you have UCLA. Those are the labs that can detect all the high-level stuff. However, it was still a urine sample, and urine is a lot less accurate than a blood test when, you, when you're talking about looking at testosterone levels, et cetera. Yeah, and WADA is the World Anti-Doping Agency, exactly. something like that? They're the ones who make the regulations that the Nevada State Athletic Commission and everybody else follows when they say, hey, what's your protocol or what standards do you follow for performance-testing drugs or, or banned substances? Well, we follow the WADA code. And so USADA uses that same laboratory as well. Um, 
you know, but but the difference there is the collectors, the organization, and 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 they're, you know, they're they're the premier organization, you know, in the world probably, uh, and they do it worldwide. For folks who don't know what we're talking about, John Jones, who's the UFC light heavyweight champion, number one pound for pound fighter, pretty much consensus in the world. Won his biggest fight of his career against Daniel Cormier, but then tested positive for cocaine metabolites, which means that uh, they, the test was administered on December 4th, which means some t- sometime between two and four days before that, he had done cocaine. Yeah. it's. Do you hear that whine, Jamie? It's the fan. Does it come through the microphone? I can't tell. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> the fan for that? Yeah. Is it coming through your microphone then? Shut your microphone off. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to turn your microphone on and off, or we're going to have to put that thing somewhere. Yeah, well, either way, we're cool. Um, so for folks that don't uh, follow the UFC, this was a huge fight, probably one of the biggest fights ever as far as skill level. I think probably one of the biggest fights ever because you got the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world and a guy who many people thought could beat him. Yep. And uh, John wound up winning the fight and winning um, in pretty impressive fashion because he beat him wrestling. He took Daniel down, first time ever in Daniel Daniel Cormier, who's an Olympic wrestler, undefeated as a heavyweight and as a light heavyweight. was a, a real threat, and John beat him. So now... That the cocaine was one thing, but then this, the, the testosterone to epitestosterone ratio, which seems to indicate there's something else going on, that's a way bigger deal. It is. It is. And, and you know, right now there, there's a ton of speculation. Um, if, if, the, if the ratios were, were bigger, I think we'd hear a lot more talk about it right now. You know, right now people say, hey, these could be indicators to something masking steroids. And, and again, this all just developed. So I certainly I don't think either one of us have had a whole lot of time to dive into the details. So, you know, you, you got to hope that this scenario doesn't get any worse at this right. point. You know, you, you really don't. I, you know, personally, having trained at that gym for a number of years now, I haven't been down there in years since even before I retired. Um but there were never any rumors about John doing stuff like that. I mean, from day one when he came into the gym, he knew nothing, and he still kicked everybody's ass. Bad, to the point where people were just jealous. Uh, to the point where people thought, okay, you know, there's no way he wins this fight. Now they finally match him against a guy who's going to beat him. Then you watch him fight, and he just smokes the guy. I mean, we wondered how he was going to do against Brandon Vera. Do you remember that fight? Mm-hmm. I mean, he made it look like a joke. Yeah. And he did it to everybody. I mean, all the way through, you know, other than the Gustafson fight and then obviously, you know, or even the Rashad Evans fight. You know, the Rashad Evans fight, you know, it was it was a dominant victory, but it wasn't something where he just he ran through it. So, I personally have never heard any rumors and and the inside the fight circle, you generally hear a lot. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of guys do a lot of talking when it comes to that stuff. But uh, you just never know, you know? Well, that was one of the reasons why you retired, right? You, you were having a real issue with the, the level of performance-enhancing drugs, like the permeation of it yeah. in the sport. Absolutely. You know, you see it when you train in these gyms. And, and so you'll see guys that you come in, and all of a sudden their physique looks totally different, and you can feel the difference. And so <laughs> it's interesting because when you mention that, a bunch of people throw out excuses, et cetera, et cetera. Look, I didn't even mention this until six months after I retired and I was in a position where, hey, you know, maybe I can influence the sport a little bit here and, and try and steer it in the right direction. But it's a major, major advantage when someone goes on that type of stuff. And 
you know, for me, I had to fight at a different weight class that I already thought was fishy about that as well. You know, Vince Vanderlei Silva, hey, you're going to fight at light heavy instead of middleweight while I'm a middleweight. You know, those things happen, and I still sign to do the fight even with my suspicions. But if you're going to go at it clean and, and you're going to lose to guys that maybe you suspect were doing something, you know, for me, it came down to decision point. One, am I willing to go back to a major camp and train and leave my family behind for weeks at a time? No. Am I willing to level the playing field and take something like that, compromise my integrity, um, you know, to, to be better and get back on an ascending climb my, my career? No. Well, then I'm out. I'm out. It wasn't right. worth the head trauma at that point. So the Vanderlei Silva fight, why was it a light heavyweight? Is he, he, he wanted, wanted to fight at light yeah, heavyweight? he wanted it light heavyweight. <clears throat> well, he's, you know, he's got issues of his own, of course. Uh, Vanderlei Silva, who was an all-time great. I mean, in, in pride, long-time pride, what they call a middleweight champion, which was 203 pounds in pride, which is light heavyweight in the UFC. And most likely juice to the tits. I mean, let's be let's be honest about it. I mean, everybody in Pride was there. There was a lot of people in Pride doing a lot of crazy shit. Uh, you know, you talk to Ensign Inoue, and Ensign Inoue said that they they literally had a, a, a clause in the contract in Pride saying that they would not test you for steroids. Yeah, and you know that's. You know, this this has been a subject that for me, you know, especially in the last year, um, it's one of those subjects where I get emotional and then, you know, my, my initial instinct is to speak with emotion and then regret what I say afterwards when I calm down. And so I've really, it showed an ugly side of me that I'm, I'm not necessarily proud of and I've sat back and looked at more perspective on the whole situation and not that I still don't condemn it, but when you look at a guy's career, I, I hate seeing guys like a Vanderlei, um, like a Kung Lee, go out with something that happened towards the end of their career that caused a black eye on it and then have it ruin the entire body of work that they perform. Because right now the environment in every professional sports pressures a lot of guys to go towards that avenue. I mean, if, if we're talking about what takes place in mixed martial arts, Let's talk about the NFL. If you lifted up that rock and looked underneath it, <laughs> God bless you. There's I mean, a needle. <laughs> you, you'd have a couple of quarterbacks and you'd have maybe a punter. I even think those guys, you know, I mean, you had like a 47-year-old guy, I think, kick a 53-yarder the other day. Um, you know, I, I mean, so the environment is there. And I think if, if, if the sport in general goes towards a comprehensive testing policy, levels of playing field for everybody, I think it makes a safer environment long-term for the fighters. And, you know, maybe maybe we'll get there in the next couple of years. Well, for fighters, it's a gigantic issue, of course, because you're not talking about uh, baseball where you can hit a ball better, or basketball or anywhere you know, you're running faster. You're talking about a guy being able to deliver more physical punishment to his opponent and, you know, possibly score a knockout that he wouldn't have been able to score, possibly land a shot that he wouldn't have been able to land had he not been essentially with superhuman hormone levels. And it's widely understood that, especially in the early days of the UFC, in the early days of Pride, there were a gigantic amount of guys who were taking performance-enhancing drugs. I have a friend, I will not name names, uh, he fought for a Japanese organization, and they not only did they tell him to do steroids, they wanted him to fight at a higher weight class, they were going to help him set everything up, and you know they were even picking opponents for him that he could beat and they were you know they were setting the whole thing up so like when you know about that from the inside and you know like the organization telling the guy to take steroids you know letting them know that it's okay we're not going to test you for that 
that it had to be a, a major part of of MMA in the early days. Now those guys that came from those days now they have to adjust because like you're looking at Vitor, like Vitor who was on testosterone replacement therapy, you know, had those incredible victories over Luke Rockhold and Michael Bisping, and you know now those and Dan Henderson, and now those fights not only the come into question like you got to go man what what does he have left now that he's off that stuff and now he's got to fight with natural testosterone levels and he's going to fight chris weidman for the title we're going to find out we're going to find out next month i think he just passed his most recent i mean they've been testing Mm -hmm. him quite often i think he just passed his most recent test and absolutely right you know we're going to find out and and you know the whole trt ruling thank god it's gone because it, it just clouded the issue i think and and gave at times a sport a black eye and and you know, not only the sport, but then it kind of screwed over some fighters, too. If you're going to allow something, look, then guys are going to do it. You know, they're mm-hmm. going to find a way to do it. Um, but I think there, there's definitely been, you know, from what I've seen talking to camps, talking to fighters, I'm calling all these cards now, there has definitely been a difference. The younger breed of fighters is very anti-performance-enhancing drug. Mm-hmm. The, this, a lot, of, Especially a lot of these wrestlers, they're so used to being tested. And this is becoming like their NFL now, coming from amateur wrestling, that, that they're all for it, and, and a lot of that old breed is really starting to go away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys are starting to get randomly tested out of the blue. Yeah, and that's important. And randomly tested, the UFC is doing these random tests where they're doing the full Olympic blood panel, which is like $40,000 a fighter. And, you know, they can only do so many of those. And that's one of the things that everybody knows. So it's a bit of, you know, it's, it's a bit of a game of musical chairs. You know, there's only a few chairs everybody's moving around, you're hoping that the the music doesn't stop and you're standing up. Yep, and I mean, you're talking about over, I think it's over 550, I think it was 585 we said on UFC tonight. Fighters. Fighters on the roster. And this is across the globe. So if you want to start doing, you know, during their training camps, random testing throughout the year in all these different countries, language barriers, the labs, all that, I mean, that is a monster. And I'll tell you, from private meetings with Lorenzo Fertitta, he is very determined to find a way to make it work. You know, we've had some meetings, and it, I, I think it is in the hopper over time. But right now, it's just it's more piecemeal where they can't do it um, every single time here and there. It's going to be, hey, on this card, we're going to be able to do three. On this card, we're going to be able to do four. You know, and, and they're going to contract out and, and give the athletic commission the authority. Here's the money. You guys go partner with the organization and take care of it. Because, you know, as Dana said this week, they don't want anything to do with it. They've botched it. In, in in areas already, so they know they don't need to do it. With so. the Kung Lee fight, you mean? Yes, exactly. Kung, right. Kung Lee is a fighter who was a um, his entire career was you know he had like some really spectacular victories over in Strike Force. He's a great kicker, and he had a real good wrestling background too. So he had a very unusual style in that he threw a lot of like wild Taekwondo style kicks, but he was also really good at stuffing takedowns and could throw guys around. Um, came over to the UFC, had some wins, had some losses, you know, fought fought his heart out, and then took his last fight against Michael Bisping, and there was all these photographs of him just looking different than he's ever looked before. It, like we were talking about, yep. like this radical change in his appearance. He had this mad fucking six-pack where you never saw that from him before. And, you know, he said, hey, this is the first time. I'm healthy in a long time. I'm doing a lot of strength and conditioning. But it's just super odd to see someone in their, you know, late 30s, 40s, 40 years old? 40? Yes. 40 years old being built like that out of nowhere. It's very, very odd. And, I mean, unless someone goes on, like, a 
fucking vision quest for like, you know, seven, nine months, whatever, and just radical fucking strength and conditioning training, you don't see that much of a difference in a person's body. Yeah. Especially while you're working on skills and you're sparring and you're, you know, you're doing drills and you're doing all the shit that you need to do to win fights. And when you're, when you're training like that, it is so hard to then go hit the weight room and Mm -hmm. get that kind of muscle density and put on that kind of mass. And I mean, that's where it gets really difficult. And, uh. You know, and again, but explain the story with Kung Lee. What sure, happened with yeah, him. exactly. Yes, I mean, he, he goes in to fight, and I, I remember it was uh, Saturday morning. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was calling the fights that morning, and I wake up, and, and my buddy's like, "Hey, the fight pass card is on. We put it on." We literally, just woke up because it was in China, and so fight takes place. Michael Bisbing wins, and at the same time, I remember I was reading an article where Bisbing was talking about the picture Kung took, and. You know, Mike has always been very vocal since he's fought a bunch of TRT guys, and and he's had some opportunities squandered Mm -hmm. in his career. And so then I pushed out the tweet where um, it said, "Good start," or didn't pay to cheat for once. Good start to the day, and you know, it it sent off, you know, a just a wildfire, which all of a sudden I realized. Yeah, that was one of those emotional (laughs) times where having the phone in my hand was, and you know what. I'm older and I'm wiser than that. And I, it was, it was one of those times. And then, you know, it was told to me, Hey, it's best to keep your mouth shut right now. Um, you know, afterwards. So it it was certainly not a situation that I was proud of. Regardless, I'm always going to be for proper testing, clean sport, et cetera. But it is not my job to go around making accusations or whatever that there's bodies to do that. But it is certainly something that, that does get me emotional. And it triggers a side of me I'm not so proud of, a, a side that speaks before thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's been a real good lesson learned for me, you know, over the course of this year being a, a, an official sports broadcaster, not a fighter who does commentating on the side, you know. And, and, and that's something where there comes a, a certain amount of responsibility with this. Are we not broadcasting audio? Is that what's going on? Yeah, Issue. It seems to be recording fine. I'm recording it here fine. What's it's the not, issue? It's not hitting Ustream. I don't know. I, I Why don't you reboot? Re- okay. 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 Yeah. Just, just kill, kill your mic. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that is a transition, right? I mean, it's uh, it's also like you're speaking from the heart. But if you were in a gym, if you walked in the gym and you were talking to a bunch of guys in the gym, that'd be a normal conversation. Absolutely. But, but you did it publicly, and when you do it publicly, you invite every fucking troll and all these certainly dorks that just sit in front of the computer waiting. For something like this to talk about, to and, get angry at you. And I don't, you know, I don't follow my own personal, you know, look, if that is a conversation I should have with him first before I ever go anywhere else. And, you know, I actually tried to contact him a few days after and, and you know, he had just lost the fight. He wasn't, he wasn't ready to speak. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where, where you live and learn, you know, and, and you learn the hard way when, when you do something. But at the same time, uh, you know, it, it's not one of those situations where it's going to make me back down from from stating right from wrong in this sport and, and, and standing up for what's right. And you were saying that he was ready to take the nine-month suspension. He was you ready know, to take the nine-month suspension, then they changed it to 12, and then they started having this, this according issue. Yeah, according to, to the UFC. So there was something where you know his camp was ready to take the nine-month, and then instead you know when it got up to 12, that's where they fought it and ended up beating it. And then everything had to be rescinded. Well, he they ended up beating it because the, the way that the tests were handled was incorrect. The way that the tests were administered was incorrect. It was all done by someone that the UFC had hired to do it, but it wasn't done to the protocol. Of yeah, the, the lab. The lab mm-hmm. couldn't. The, the lab was not 
capable of, of actually testing accurately for human growth hormone, which is what they said he failed for. So that's kind of a disaster. And it, was, and it was an absolute disaster. Absolute disaster, which is really why the UFC has now abandoned, you know, trying to do this. And, and you know, they, they've taken a step backwards to evaluate right now. It's really fascinating to me because the sport is, um, it's the most intense and the most, in my opinion, the most dangerous sport in a sense that you have so much on the line. Like, if you lose uh, an auto race, auto races are dangerous, and you could crash, you could die, and there's, a, there's no doubt about that. It's a very dangerous game. Mm-hmm. Football, also very dangerous. But there's something about losing a fight that is so much more personal. There's so much more on the line. It's so much different than any other loss. You lose a basketball game, ah, fuck, we lost. You know, let's have a beer. Let's. You lose a fight, man. It's a fucking life-changing event. It tremendous, is- tremendous. There's well, one. There's no teammates to point to. Yeah. You know, it's just you and the other guy in the ring. You know, sometimes you get guys who will use the referee as an excuse, the judge as an excuse, and you're on a fifty percent pay scale. So when 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 I would fight, you know, I would get forty thousand dollars to show up and fight, and forty thousand more to win. That's a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of months of paying the mortgage. That that's you know, a, a big chunk that I can then put away for the future and what I need to do as a fighter for when I retire. There's a lot of that. So it becomes very personal, not to mention your standing, your contract negotiations, who you fight next, how soon you fight next. All these things go into a play, and depending on how you lose, if a fighter loses by a vicious knockout, how much of that just shorten his career? So mm-hmm. there's a lot on the line, and, and a big part of that is the reason why people are so intrigued by this sport. That's why they want to watch it because they know, wow, these guys, they lay it on the line. This this is different than any other sport. Who are these people that, that are capable of making that walk and doing that? And that, that really, I think, is, is part of the reason why people are so uh, it, it, eager to watch the sport and get so interested and so involved in it. That victory incentive, that doesn't exist in boxing, does it? You don't ha- they don't have a win-loss thing in Boston as far as like 50 to win, 50 to, you know, 50 to show, 50 to win. Then that's not Does that uh, exist in boxing? Uh, it, it, it may. I've never seen it. It's usually a contracted amount. Yeah. It's a contracted amount. D- that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, it's I I think the UFC likes it because it it makes people uh, gives them the incentive to fight, but goddamn, don't they already have the incentive to fight? You know, it's it's one of those things where when you talk to Joe Silva about some of those things, he he has some some very strong ideologies on it since he's been there so long. You know, there's one point where they did finish bonuses for anybody who finished on the card. He said that was a complete failure. Um, you know, so it's interesting. That would be a pretty cool, you know, to pull all the data, put it into some kind of model and see. You know, but in my opinion, it seems like to me it's it's financially more beneficial to win long term mm-hmm. than it is to take a whole lot of risks. Of course, yeah, without a doubt. And it's also, I mean, you only have so many fights in your career, and if you're extending your uh, yourself and you're you're putting yourself in danger to try to eke out a win and fighting in maybe what you would call a non-technical way or fighting in a reckless way. Your long time, you're going to cost yourself money, absolutely, right? because you're you're going to take shots you wouldn't take, and you're going to put yourself. It's a it's a short term gamble that really is only beneficial to the folks that are watching it in the UFC. Yeah, and and when you look at it, you know, from from spending the last year calling fights, you know, I've really gotten to know Joe Silva and Sean Shelby uh, a lot better than I did when I was a fighter. I've seen them reward the guys. You know, there, there was a, a miss. 
miscommunication, or I think some guys just had it wrong, you know, back when I fought, where, hey, I got to go in there and brawl. I've seen them reward guys very well for going out there and fighting, very similar to how Frankie Edgar fought Cub Swanson. He didn't go out there and trade with him. He went out there, he moved around, did what he needed to do, shot the takedown, and dominated the fight on the ground, then gets the finish at the very last few seconds of the fifth round. And and they, they absolutely love the fight like that. So I don't... I think that fighters need to realize, look, go in there and get the fight finished as fast as you can and win in most dominant fashion. What I've seen where they get frustrated with is where guys will ride certain positions out. They get inside the guard, make no attempt to pass to do more damage. They get inside the clinch. They're happy to just hold them against the cage for a while until the referee separates them. I think that's some of the things that get them a little frustrated when when guys will win fights like that, but then ask for major things after it's, hey, I want a better contract, I want higher-profile matchups, I want to be on the main card, or I want to be the main event. And for for folks that are not familiar with training camps, there's one thing that has to be taken into consideration when you watch a fight, when you see a guy maybe stalling like that, that guy might have fought injured, he might have fought sick, he might have gotten injured during camp and not been able to train correctly, so he has to take advantage of what, what little opportunities sometimes that he can get to take a break because he doesn't have the gas tank to go all out. Absolutely. And you can't tell by looking at a guy. No, you're at never. All. With, with, when you're warmed up like that, you're going to be able to move through certain injuries, but it doesn't mean you have a, as much pop on your punch or your kick with that, you know, with that portion of your body. You know, it was funny because um, I get it all the time. Man, that fight with you and Vanderlei Silva was awesome, but why did you, why did you fight him like that? And you know, I'll tell him, you know, honestly, I flew to Japan and, and I actually, I, I tore a part of my hip the second day there. I was real stiff from the training camp and I would overtrain bad. You know, it was, a, it was a big problem for me. I always thought the more I could do, the better I'd be. So I couldn't lift my left knee to my chest. And, and it's funny because Dr. D, who flies into all the events, he had to come right to my hotel room as soon as he got there. And I said, hey, just get me a lidocaine. Completely allowable by the commission. It's legal. It'll numb it. Be good to go. Couldn't get it in Tokyo. And so, all right, well, you know, I'm going to have to find a way around that. And this happens to all fighters. Who knows? I mean, Vanderlei could have easily showed up to that, you know, with, with something torn in his body as well. Yeah. And so, you know, you go in there round one, and I rock him. I'm saying, all right, well, this guy's got a lot of miles on him. One more shot, and, and I'll finish this thing. Oh, shit, he just knocked me down. <laughs> you know, and then it, just, it kind of started going back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's one of those fights you almost black out in. You just get lost in the violence and, and knowing you're putting on a great fight. Um, that even, you know, when, when I woke up and I started to realize what happened, which was when John Anik starts interviewing me, I was like, oh, man, I lost. You know, it's one of those things where, all right, you know, but at least I went out on my shield. The fights that really haunt you are the ones where you go home and you're like, man, I could have pushed a little harder. I could have done this. I could have done that. That was a wild fucking fight with you and Van- <laughs> Vandalay. You know, whatever, you say whatever you want about performance-enhancing drugs, and he did run away. Vandalay suspended for life, for folks who uh, don't know the whole story. He ran away from um, a random drug test. They showed up at his gym and literally ran out the door. He's like, I got to go. See ya. <laughs> and they suspended him for life, which is really unprecedented. And in my opinion, it's kind of fucked up because the guy is a legend and he's one of my all-time favorite fighters, it, if not my all-time. It kills me to, to see, you know, look, absolutely people should be punished for what they did wrong, but... Let's and I've actually said this in a couple of interviews. I don't know if anybody ever saw them, but let's let's not completely black out the entire career. Yeah, you know there there are Hall of Fame worthy martial artists who they screwed up like every other human being in there. Hey, call a spade a spade and make them stand accountable for it. 
But at the end of the day, they have an entire body of work to look upon. But isn't it true, though? I mean, some of these guys that are Hall of Fame-type guys, Hall of Fame-caliber guys, most likely were cheating their entire careers. I mean, that's there's a big percentage of guys who you could point a finger at, especially guys that are fighting in Japan, and if you talk to the guys who fought in Japan, they will tell you that, yeah, this is what was going on. Mark Coleman told me he went backstage and he saw Vanderlei oiling up his body. He saw him oil. He's like, what the fuck you doing, man? You can't do that. <laughs> they were oiling up so it that nobody a, could take him down. It was a circus back then, man. And that, that organization was an absolute circus. And for people that are listening, it is Light years different in the UFC. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, that that was an absolute circus. Well, they they let fighters fight like fights that should have never taken place. Like, how about Bob Sapp, three hundred seventy five <laughs> pounds, fought Tamora, which was like one eighty five, right? Any anything? I mean, literally, if they could have put a tiger in there with a human <laughs> being, they knew they would have made money off that, and they yeah. would they would have absolutely done that if yeah. they could find a way to not go to jail afterwards. They would have done it. Yeah, they put together some fucking ridiculous shows. What about Hongman Choi versus Fedor? Remember that? <laughs> I mean, Hongman Choi was like seven feet tall. He weighed three hundred, who knows what the fuck pounds. He was a legitimate giant. He, he absolutely with, with with less athleticism in his body than my five year old daughter. Yeah, well, I mean, the poor guy was like, oh. his bones probably weighed as much as his fucking table. Oh. I mean, he was just. He was a mess. I mean, physically, he had a fucking tumor in his pituitary gland. I mean, he, that's why, he, the same as Bigfoot Silva. Yeah, absolutely. Bigfoot Silva, who still fights for the UFC, still an elite fighter. I mean, that poor fucking guy. I mean, he's a guy who legitimately needs testosterone replacement yeah. therapy, and he can't have it. He's got to have a some operation on his head now, and now he's going to fight Frank Mir, right? Yeah. He- yeah, he's got Frank Mir coming up. Look, God bless him. I mean, the guy's still in there throwing, but he's he's a guy who legitimately needs it. Um, fucking Noguera. We've we played it uh, a couple weeks ago. We did a fight companion and watched Noguera versus Bob Sapp. And fucking Noguera got pile drive by 375 pound Bob Sapp, picked him up and dropped him and Noguera's weight on Noguera's head. It was the fucking most horrendous thing to ever watch someone do to someone. You're like, oh god. And meanwhile, Noguera went went on to win that fight, which shows you of course how he did. tough that guy was back then. That that dude is, I saw him in Rio just a few weeks ago, and it was so cool to see because, you know, everybody was just sitting at this this little bar, and it was right next to the restaurant in the hotel, and when he came walking downstairs, as humble as can humanly be, he comes down, everybody stood up. Oh, yeah. Not just Brazilians, but everybody associated with fighting stood up out of respect for this guy who, you know, the day he retires should be immediately put into the UFC Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, there should be some sort of a martial arts Hall of Fame. You know, like not just the UFC, just a, all schools, of, yes. all disciplines. You know, he's in there for sure. I mean, he expl- I mean, he showed how you could win fights off your back in the heavyweight division, which nobody was doing. Nobody no. was triangling Mark Coleman. Who the fuck is going to triangle yeah. Mark Coleman? He's going to pick you, know? you up and slam you. I mean, it, yeah. And it, Mark Coleman, by the way, fighting in pride, most likely on a variety of Mexican supplements. I mean, he's <laughs> fucking, he looks in, insane. He was enormous. <laughs> he was so good back then, too. I mean, that was Mark, you know, like during the days where he won the Pride Heavyweight Grand Prix. Leather skin. Oh, he's a fucking animal. <laughs> Mark Coleman, I was there, um, the first fight I ever worked was UFC 12. 
And that was when Mark Coleman won the UFC heavyweight title. He beat Dan Severn. He got him in a fucking judo headlock and just almost pulled his head <laughs> off. It was, you know. The old schoolyard, the schoolyard yeah. move. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the schoolyard move. It was like he was kind of in, like, side control but laying on top of him. And he had his head. And he was just fucking yanking his you know, head. That's, that's that, I forget the name. You know, catch wrestling. Mm-hmm. Josh Barnett. Isn't that yes. what he got Dean Lister in? Yes. And then uh, Olsenick, who's a current UFC heavyweight. Who's two and zero right now at forty seven years old in the UFC as a heavyweight? Mm-hmm. He tapped out. He tapped out three guys in a row with that technique. It it's brutal. Works. Oh yeah, if a guy gets you like that, especially a guy like Josh Barnett, oh. who's got a ridiculous grip, he gets you in that position. And Good you're, night, you're Foxville. I mean, he fucking tapped Dean Lister, who's a Abu Dhabi great, one of the best <laughs> submission wrestlers in the world. It means something if you Fuck, tap that guy yeah. out. Oh, it Josh means Barnett. Something. You know, he's a bad dude. Yeah, he's a bad motherfucker, and he is the best representative, in my opinion, in all of modern MMA for catch wrestling. I mean, he really is a student of that game. He really understands that sport. That was the fight when he fought Daniel Cormier. That was the fight that woke me up. You know, mm-hmm. when you see this, I mean, Cormier, what did he have, like eight, nine fights at that point in time? Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, he had barely any any experience, and he goes in there and beats a guy like Josh Barnett, where granted his wrestling gave him a major advantage in that, but, you know, still... Barnett's a crafty guy. You make any mistakes in there, he's going to catch you. Screen keeps going black over here, Jamie. Is this not real? I don't know. It's still going out. Okay. It's not on, not on my fucking computer. It's not. Yeah. Oh, there it goes. Came back. Uh, yeah, Josh Barnett is a very good wrestler, too. So to see Daniel Cormier launch him through the air like that, the same thing he did to Dan Henderson. Dude. Who the fuck has ever done that to Dan Henderson? I trained, the first time I trained with Daniel Cormier, we were all doing one of these shows here in, in L.A., and he's like, hey, let, let's get a session in today. And so we go to this tiny little gym, and it's got one of those really small cages. I mean, you know, I could lay across it, and I'd almost be you know as long as the cage. And I'm training with Cormier. And he's picking me up. I mean, if he wanted to throw me right out of this octagon, I've never had a man pick me up that easy. Once his hips pop, you're in the air. And it just it shows the kind of leverage and bec- you know the length and the technique that John Jones has to have stopped that repeatedly and stifled those attempts. Yeah, and when the one time that Daniel did take him down like that, it was for a second. And John was back up to his feet like he was on springs. Wouldn't even have been scored a takedown in wrestling yeah, rules. Yeah. I mean, he bellied down immediately and popped right back up. It was incredible. Yeah, John is a freak. I mean, he's a real freak athlete. You know, and the crazy part is he, you know, I don't know if John's ever been in a jiu-jitsu class and shrimped before. Really? Like, he's never lifted weights in between fights, to my knowledge. He doesn't train. Like, he comes, he does his... Seven to nine week camp, he leaves, martial arts is over. I think he's got a heavy bag in his basement in his house in New York that he'll hit every once in a while. (laughs) What? I'm dead serious. And so now he's actually moving to Albuquerque and -hmm. saying how I'm going to train year round. I mean, it's, you know, aside from all the other things going on with him, he's obviously got some things to take care of. But he comes out of this the other end and starts training year round. It's really, really scary. I mean, the guy never lifts weights in between fights. He just comes in and starts lifting then. That's so incredible. It's so crazy he doesn't train in between fights. So what does he do in between fights? Just hangs out? He's got nothing. There's, he lives in Ithaca. Ithaca, New York. I drove when I was supposed when I was fighting Phil Davis. They gave me that fight. It was right after I had just fought in December. I had just had a baby. And so we, were, we already had plane tickets booked to go to Pennsylvania to see some family for Christmas where I'm from. And so, man, I got to train with some wrestlers. I'm, I'm fighting this guy named Phil Davis who I can't find any footage of. But I know he's a national champ. And... I'm not really a good matchup for this guy. So, of course, 
you know, I end up driving all the way up to upstate New York to try and train with John. And I'm training in some, I don't know if it was like Ithaca College, some mat somewhere. He shows up in sweatpants and tosses me all over the place. I mean, he didn't even know anything back then. He knew a little bit of wrestling. He didn't know any jujitsu. He didn't know how to strike. He was watching the first day in Greg Jackson's gym. He's like, oh, man, I watched all these YouTube videos of Muhammad Ali. So he goes in there, and he's got his hands down, and he's snapping jabs, playing the rope-a-dope with Muhammad Ali, and just, you know, toasting everybody. What a freak. Greg was running around the gym, running around the gym saying to his wife, saying to me, that's that's my next champion. That's my next champion. At the time, I was still at light heavyweight. So Greg politely said, "Well, after you, Brian." And I looked at him. I said, "Look, Greg, I'm I'm old enough and mature enough that that I can tell you right off the bat. Look, you, you could you could save that that shit for someone else. All right." <laughs> well, that's rare, and that's one of the reasons why you've been able to transition successfully into your career in broadcasting. Is that like you you let it go like in a way that very few guys do like you you let it go with many many miles still left on your engine you you just decided you know what i'm okay i'm good i'm young i'm healthy i can still fight for sure you could still compete at the highest level but you decided and yeah i'm good you know and, and there was a couple you know there are a couple things to it um one you know, when, when I got knocked out by Vanderlei, I knew right then that night in my hotel room that I was done. If I can't beat a fighter who's an aging fighter, who, yes, he's one of the best of all time, but he's an aging fighter. I'm now taking a step backwards. I had to evaluate because, look, I played football for 14 years, um, got hit with a few IEDs in Iraq. I mean, there's a few indicators here. And then, you know, I, I trained in the air and came up in MMA where it was you go to war twice a week in sparring. Yeah, that was a different era, right? It, People it's are starting to learn now. They're, yeah. they're starting to well, you're starting to see those guys in the gym, the ten year later guys that are still, you know, sort of in the sport, but have diminished considerably and their faculties have diminished considerably. And that's a that's a big issue that a lot of people have is those guys that nobody talks to, those guys that are still around, and you get a chance to see what that style of training can do to you. Now you're seeing a lot of guys who are training. They're, they're, if you find good training partners, you can get so much better by not hitting each other hard. Absolutely. And that's something that people have a hard time accepting. Everybody wants everybody to be tough. Most fucking guys in the UFC are already tough. They don't have to take punches to be tough. You know, it's just what you need to do is work on your reflexes, your timing, your technique, and, and then the skill set. Working on strategies, working on understanding what to do in various positions, where to never be, what to do if you find yourself in a place that, instead of just winging it on toughness, which you're, you're still seeing. You're still seeing guys fight at the highest level with their fucking chin up in the air, their hands down, and they're winging punches, and they're going in, and, you know, occasionally it works, and occasionally it doesn't. And they're and they're they're flipping coins when they do it. And it's ex yeah. you, you know, it's exactly right. And a big part of my focus when I get to visit with all these fighters before I call their fights, I'll talk to them about that. You know, your objective is to make the maximum amount of money for as long as you can in your career. Fight as many times a year as you can. And I'll always ask them, "Do you get paid in the gym?" And of course, they look at me like I'm stupid. No, I don't. You get paid when you fight, right? So why are you, why are you fighting in the gym? You know, look, I'm guilty of it. And I use it myself. I, I, for years, never got rocked. I mean, I, mean, I spar with some really hard-hitting guys, you know, Jardine, Rashad Evans, you know, some really good guys that, that would get after it. I would never get rocked. All of a sudden, you know, towards the end of my career, my last two camps, I started to notice, man, I'm starting to get some headaches. You know, I started, 
you know, feeling the repercussions of training so hard for so many years. And instead of focusing on sparring partners that can mimic my opponent, I'm just focusing on winning in the gym against various level guys who are going to go 100% against me. And, and that takes away from your career. It cuts it short. And it cuts down that window to where you can make that maximum amount of money. You know, where, where you look at these guys now that are getting smarter, just like you said, and, and they're tracking that sort of thing. You know, Mark Henry counts how many strikes Frankie Edgar puts out a sparring session because when they do their game plan, you need to fight at this pace. I want this many strikes per round. This is what you have to do to win the fight. So he'll watch Frankie sparring the whole camp to make sure he's on pace to win that fight for what they feel he'll need to do to win. And he's using like a clicker. Yep. He's ca- Mark Henry's one of the most underrated trainers in the game today. He's a guy who does not get enough credit. And I, I've talked to Schaub because Schaub did some training down there with uh, Frankie Edgar. And he was like, this guy's got fucking notebook after notebook filled with all the different strategies, techniques, things they're working on, things to do for various fighters. I mean, you look what he did to Cub. I mean, Cub's a fucking monster. Oh. He is such a good fighter, and Frankie shut him down. It, and, and Cub's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And, and he got into half guard and really, he knew what to do from there, but because of the continuous strikes, I mean, it was a pace on top, not even just in the striking realm, but on top. Yeah. Frankie never stopped punching, which when you're punching a guy in half guard, it makes you a threat to pass to mount, pass to, to, to full side control. It made Cub worry more about retaining half guard, maybe getting back to full guard, than blocking the punches hitting his face. And on top of that, every time a guy's punching you, you can't breathe. So every time a guy's punching you, you're tightening up, you're you're constricting your body when he's punching your body, and you're you're cutting in, you're cutting back on the amount of oxygen you get. That's like one of the strategies that Nick Diaz has always used in his career. He'll hit a guy 150 times at like 50 percent. He just gets in front of your face and starts throwing punches, and people are like, oh, those don't even hurt. Yes, they, first of all, yeah. yes they do. Yes they do. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Let him punch you 50. percent It might not knock you dead, but it fucking hurts. And he hits you with four of those. It's probably almost as good as one. One full full blast punch. He's going to hit you with a bunch of them, and you're not going to be able to breathe. Wait. You're going to be tightening up constantly. Toe to toe with Paul Daly, Robbie Lawler knocked both out. Yeah, you know, Incredible. I mean, those are just two of the examples of what he's able to do. And you know, he has good accuracy. I mean, he'll knock him out. He's pretty pinpoint when he goes and hits a guy in the chin right when they think it's not hurting, and then he does drop him. And it's a suffocating style because I feel, and I don't know if there's science to back this up. I haven't researched, but when you're exhausted, you're easier to get knocked out. Oh, for you sure. You know, you can't yeah. tense up as much when you and, and roll with the punches as much. You end up taking it square, and, and it rocks the jaw, crushes the nerves, and, and you're mm-hmm. out. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, you know, those fights, man, goddamn, especially the Paul Daly fight. Oh. His chin is another thing. I mean, you can't teach that. You can't teach the ability to absorb punishment that he has. I mean, it's just, he's so tough. And the, the psychology, too. You know, to walk into an octagon in front of all these people, Everybody you know and care about in the world is going to watch that fight, and you got to face them afterwards. And and your decision, I mean, you talk about the fight or flight, and there's still fighters who, even though they're professional fighters and they're, they're, they're way tougher than your normal populace, you know, there's, there's levels, many subtle levels once you get to the highest level. Nick Diaz doesn't, he doesn't care. He's going to go toe-to-toe with you. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, Anderson Silva, he's going to go toe-to-toe with him, and there's no issues there. Even though he hasn't been in the octagon in a long time, there's there's something psychologically in that man where, hey, you know what? If you tell me you're going to draw a line and fight, then I'm there. And he'll admit he doesn't even like fighting. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty crazy. It's tough. Well, he wants that money. You know? I mean, yeah. he made a lot of money in the George St. Pierre fight and then took a long time off. And now he's coming back and fighting Anderson Silva on Anderson's comeback fight, which is, a, man, what a, a lot of questions in that fight, oh. right? 
That's fight. It's all. It's one big. That should be the poster for that <laughs> fucking fight. Just a question mark. Who the fuck knows what's going to yeah. happen in that fight? Yeah, and most people, you know, will look at it and say, "Well, you know, Diaz is going to come out and he's going to want to box." And Anderson just has so many weapons on the feet, but how does he throw those weapons? Mm-hmm. And you know, we haven't seen the Diaz brothers do too many leg check, you know, checking leg kicks yet. You know, certainly Nate didn't do it against Rafael dos Anjos, but if Nick Diaz or yeah, if Nick Diaz comes out there and he checks a few leg kicks for Anderson. Does that slow down the attack? Mm-hmm. You know, does he hit the same area again? Does he check that? Who knows? I mean, you know, if I have to bet money, you know, I'm going to put it on the all-time great Anderson Silva, but I'm not quite ready to count out Nick Diaz out of this fight just yet. I'm not counting him out at all. And Anderson Silva, for folks who don't know what we're talking about, is the greatest of all time. Broke his leg in his last fight, threw a kick. Uh, Chris Weidman lift up his knee. Anderson caught him in the top part of the shin, which is a, a brutal spot to get checked. And Anderson's leg snapped like a twig. It was really, I've only seen it happen twice live. Corey Hill, long time yep. ago, who looked like a guy who would break. I mean, Corey was really tall for the weight class. Was he fighting 155? 155. That was yeah. a disgusting cut. Oh, he was really, 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 really thin. And, uh, I mean, it probably takes something out of your bones, too. I mean, it takes something out of your organs, for sure. Super bad for your kidneys. And these guys are dehydrating themselves like that. But Corey breaking his leg was very shocking, but there was something about watching Anderson break his leg where you just know, like, Anderson is an all-time great, the all-time great, the, the yeah. most spectacular performer we've ever seen in the UFC, and his leg, his leg just snapped. The the best martial artist, in my opinion, in the history of martial arts. Yeah. I mean, you, when you look at, like, the, and you want to talk about, you know, Benny the Jet, Bill Superfoot Wallace, and you have Bruce Lee, and you had all the, you know, and you can go way back in history. Path pavers, for sure. Absolutely. You, you've got to then look at Anderson Silva and how he was able to bring to the most complete fighting style known to man the artistry he brought to it the many different ways he won from different kicks to submissions i mean he can he can do it all i still think the greatest fighter to ever go in the octagon is john jones though i really? don't think wow. any i don't think anybody has ever beat the 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 level of competition he's beaten by uh by the margins that he's done so I mean, drops Machida unconscious to the floor. Yeah. I mean, the way he's done it, he submitted Vitor after he got his arm fucked up in that arm bar and <laughs> refused to tap. Yep. You know, I mean, fought Gustafson and from all indications, barely fucking trained for that fight and still gutted it out in those final rounds and won. It's funny you bring that. I mean, that that's that's what I've heard as well. I don't know if they're true, but that that's certainly the rumblings, you know, that 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 was there was some stuff taken lightly. He just it's boxed very for it. rare when you hear those rumblings and they're not true. I mean, when yeah. was the half time you heard ah, a guy barely trained? You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? The guy was doing two a days. He was running five miles. He was eating nothing but the, the most wholesome foods. That's not what I heard. I heard he was doing the exact opposite. <laughs> he was eating some very unwholesome foods. Yeah. Well, I mean, when he, when he fought Shogun for the title, it was one of the worst beatings I've seen inside the Octagon. He threw Shogun's a fucking so flying knee in his opening move. His, he's the youngest guy to ever fight for the UFC title, and he throws a fuck. Not the youngest guy to ever fight for a title. I believe that was John Alessio. I think John Alessio was 20 when he fought Pat Militich yep. way back in the day. But youngest John, guy to win it. Youngest guy youngest to guy win champion. it. Champion throws a fucking flying knee on Shogun and cracks him right in the chin. I mean, I mean, just ridiculous stuff that he threw. I mean, he threw what did he try flying armbar on Cormier? I got a theory about that shit, man. Uh, my theory is that guys who grow up with brothers that beat the fuck out of them 
are just on a completely different level. Because Weidman grew up with a brother to beat the fuck out of him. Matt Hughes and his brother beat the fuck out of each other. John Jones had two super athlete brothers. He's got two brothers that are fucking NFL studs. And, you know, his brother Arthur, by all all indications, kicks John's ass when they work out together. Yeah, and he, he kicked John's ass growing up plenty. I mean, he was Fuck. a state champion wrestler, yeah. I believe. Yeah, huge guy, too. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, he's 300 plus. And when you grow up like that, I think you just have a, a level of tough. I think also your body develops stronger. You know, I mean, it's, it's something about tangling with a brother your whole life. I mean, you're in competition from the time you're a baby, you're yeah. always going to war. And, and coupled with that, I have not seen in a guy like John. The belief, you know, John will, you know, he'll watch a movie about like chi or something. And I'm making this up, obviously. And and he'll think it truly exists in him. So he has, he meditates near a waterfall the day of his fight, always. They got to find water. He's got to go to water. And, you know, he sits there and he'll meditate and he focuses on it. Most guys would point to that and say, that is the, the dumbest thing I've ever seen. They try and make fun of somebody for it. John doesn't care. John, you know, being in the locker room with him for several fights, on the same card, he's back there. As this young kid who has very few life experiences, so calm, never once does the thought of him losing run through his mind. I mean, when he went out and fought Vladimir Matyoshenko, I fought on that card. And in John's jiu-jitsu, I had submitted him several times in that training camp. He goes out there against Vladdy, and the game plan was to strike with him because Vladdy was such a good wrestler and so good on the ground, and John wasn't good on the ground. Immediately takes Vladimir down, passes his guard, Elbows him into oblivion, the, phone, the fight's over. I didn't know that John even knew how to pass the guard at that point. I'm serious. You know, you don't do beginner's jiu-jitsu classes at Greg Jackson's gym. He'll do it in, like, private sessions with them, you know. But, but John, it just, you know, I remember submitting him several times one week, and then two weeks later, we're in Denver, Colorado for that camp, and he catches me in, in a submission. I look at Greg, I go, did he learn jiu-jitsu in two weeks? You know, it's just always been that way. The only other guy that I hear that's like that to that extreme where every move they learn, they could use it instantly, is Weidman. Really? When I talk to guys, and I, I go into Henzo's frequently for the, the nonprofit I run, there's a lot of guys up in Wall Street who have been very generous and are very avid for veterans getting jobs, and they'll always meet me at Henzo's, and they train there. And the guys there will talk about it, like, you know... Uh, you sit there in these classes, and it takes me thousands of reps to get this move to work on high-level competition. Weidman learns it, drills it once, and then submits everybody in the class with it. He's just that much of an animal. Yeah, well, he's a fucking st- When you get a stud wrestler that picks up jiu-jitsu, what a fucking oh. hor- horrific combination that is. Especially for guys like me. I mean, <laughs> it, absolutely. For anybody, man. Yeah. You know, you know who Eric Bradley is, wrestler? I don't. He, I don't. He was training at Eddie's for a while, and uh, I, I, uh, we were doing this drill where, I mean, he's not much bigger than me, like maybe 15 pounds, but we were doing this drill. We were doing this knee-to-belly drill, and, uh, you know, you start out with knee on belly and see how long you can hold it. He might as well had, he might have, might as well have had a building on top of me. Might as well have had a fucking full foundation, a few cars parked in, in the building. I mean, I wasn't getting up. I got on top of him. He threw me off like I was a, like I, he was getting out of bed and he was throwing off the covers. It was just ridiculous. It's it's there's a, a kid just like that. His name is Raymond Jordan, and he wrestled with Tyron Woodley and Ben Askren versus Missouri. And he was younger than those guys. And he was a two time All American there. Never was a national champion though. And Woodley will tell you, he's like, I won't touch Ray anymore. 
Won't touch him. And so he went to go be Jordan Burrow's main partner while he went and won gold. And I actually had him come to Atlanta to help me train for four weeks before I fought Michael Bisping. The first week he was there, the UFC cameras were in town. And, you know, you had me, you had Tom Watson who fights in the UFC, you had Douglas Lima, who's the Bellator champion, was in there, uh, Juan Carnero, who's coming back to the UFC and fight Mark Munoz. And then here's Raymond Jordan, this, this kid who's never done this shit really before. He was beating everybody so bad that the UFC camera said, Brian, this is some of the best footage we've ever gotten, but we can't use any of it. Who is this kid? <laughs> and he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't. He, he just he, wants to wrestle. He mounts, he, he mounts and taps high-level, world-class-level black belts because he's, he's got that same funky style on the mat that these, these Missouri Tigers have. He's the most natural athlete I've ever met. Everything he throws is hard, by the way. Um, just doesn't want to. He's just not interested in it. That's so crazy. So what does he do? Just coaches wrestling? I, I help him get a job. He works at a company called Med Assets, and it's the it's run by the gentleman who chairs the board of the company I run. And and he's also brilliant, by the way. He's an African American kid who grew up with a crack dealing uncle. Both of his parents are dead by six, and you would think this kid graduated from Harvard. He, he's an anomaly, and wow. he's brilliant. And so he works in finance with them and, and does deal analysis for a Fortune 500 company, poker traded company. He's awesome. So just doesn't have the desire to fight. No. You know, he looks as, uh, you know, I've, he's been grinding for so long with wrestling, and I think it burnt him out. Yeah, that happens you know? to a lot of those guys. It's tough. Is there a sport where people overtrain more than in wrestling? No. I mean, it teaches them mental toughness, and that is true. There's no doubt about it. That wrestlers can perform and come back and, and, and push in ways that a lot of guys in other sports, just they, they never develop that gear, that sort of extra gear. That you see, like a guy like Johnny Hendricks have, or you see, like some of these wrestlers have. But then you get a guy like Robbie Lawler who has that fucking gear, and you know he had a little bit of a wrestling background, but he was never like an NCAA national champion or anything in, uh, along those lines. Yeah, the the odds are definitely higher coming out yeah. of that, you know, uh, that population. When you when you look at that that talent pool of. You know, amateur wrestlers, and really in any country. I mean, look at the kids we're getting in from Dagestan now. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. these guys are animals. And, and it's not just because of their combat sambo and wrestling background. I mean, you go, I would love to go over there and, and see how Khabib Nurmagomedov grew up. Mm -hmm. The hardships. It's just a different kind of people. You know, yeah. they're not nearly as spoiled as most of our asses are over here stateside. That's, a, that's without a doubt. A uh, fact. Habib Nurmagomedov is the scariest guy at 155 next to Pettis, in my opinion. I can't wait for him to get healthy. I mean, I'm looking forward to Dos Anjos fighting Pettis because I think stylistically it's a very intriguing fight. But then you watch what Nurmagomedov did uh, for Dos Anjos. He just fucking shut him. I watched that fight again the other day. He just ragdolled him. Everybody. He, he yeah. does it to everybody. And he's not a... You look at him, he doesn't look like Tyron Woodley. You know, he doesn't look like... You look at Tyron Woodley, if he smashes somebody, you go, well, Jesus, look at the you guy. You expect it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look at the guy. But you look at Nurmagomedov, he looks like an athlete, for sure. He looks like a strong guy. But the way he's fucking ragdolling people is shocking. The way he did it to Abel Trujillo. I mean, just like and fucking Abel's shocking. A, Abel's a, a stud athlete, yeah. strong as hell. You know, it's... You know, Nurmagomedov, his kinesthetic awareness and his leverage and technique, and then I, I think the, the real key ingredient, though, is his will. Yeah. Guys that have that wrestling back, they have that gear. If you don't believe someone can stop you, it's so powerful. Yeah. And he has that and the talent, and that's really, really scary. Yeah, he fights like a werewolf. 
I mean, there's yeah. like something about him. It's like he's like his, his intensity and violence is just so heightened. It's like a, his next level, just whatever it is. I mean, if his striking ever catches up to his grappling, Jesus fucking Christ, man. I mean, and it most likely will. I mean, depending on what's the state of his knee, because I know he hurt his knee, and then the rumors were he got it operated on and then hurt it again, like came back too quickly. Really, you know, I I had seen him maybe two months ago. And, you know, speaking to some of his management as well, I mean, they believe he's going to be back soon, right around, I think, the time that Pettis is going to fight Dos Anjos. So he'll be waiting in the wings, you know, quickly. He, I think he's even complained that Dos Anjos is even getting the shot. Yeah, he is complaining that, but he's not ready to, I mean, he no. can't train right now. No. And if he does fuck his knee up, he'll probably just fucking duct tape it together and get back in there and anyway. And that's the worst know? thing. You don't want to ruin yeah. your career to come, you know, take your time and... The one crazy thing is, though, if if because it's not a walk in the park for Pettis to beat Dos Anjos. Dos no. Anjos is dangerous, and Dos Anjos wrestling looked really good against Nate Diaz. But Pettis, he's a sniper. He just needs one shot. Mm. That's how scary that kid is. I mean, he you know he can go into a fight and barely mess his hair and only hit you once. He also has a style that's based on not like. There's there's a style of kicking and punching that a lot of these guys do that's Muay Thai style where there's a step and then a kick a step and then a kick and Pettis has got that Taekwondo thing where he's he's standing there and he just throws it zero telegraph zero telegraph with KO power yep and it's tough to fuck with if you watch him like the head kick that he landed on Joe Lozon oh. there's it comes out of nowhere the one he landed on Donald Cerrone it comes out of nowhere and Cerrone's a fucking excellent oh. striker. And he's in phenomenal. That kid naturally has incredible cardio. We would go do these sand dunes at Jackson's, you know, at altitude. These things are are sixty to seventy meter high, or, or or length sand dunes that that are a steep incline to where the sand falls and you have to crawl up with all force. He glides up those things, smokes everybody, even when he's not in, in premier shape. To kick him in the body and KO him. I mean, you've got a bruise deep, deep, deep on the. I call them soul kicks. You <laughs> kick a dude so hard, and you see that, uh, you see the shit face, yeah, and the soul just comes sneaking right out the mouth. You know that's what happens. There's nothing you can do. Those liver shots, man, they're not like anything anybody could describe unless you've been hit like that. Ugh. It's this weird thing where your body just stops working, and, and it's it sucks because you're helpless mm -hmm. and you're but you're conscious, mm -hmm. so you're forced to watch the dude kick your ass while you're helpless. You can't do anything. Stop it, especially in MMA. In boxing, at least you, you go down and the, you know they count ten. Like yeah. Oscar De La Hoya versus Bernard Hopkins. I mean, it was the only time we've Whoa. ever seen De La Hoya get stopped like that. But Bernard just fucking hooked him right in that liver, and you see his whole body just. <laughs> it just it's the weirdest thing, man. And sometimes you could play it off like, you know. You get hit and you can kind of move with it, and like a guy doesn't know. But then there's times where you get hit, like it doesn't. Crow Cop versus Heath Herring. You ever see that? Yes. There's a fucking photograph online. See if you can find this photo of Crow Cop's shin buried halfway into Heath Herring's body. And this is when Crow Cop was fucking Crow Cop. Yeah. When he was on his run towards the title. And he hit Heath Herring with this, uh, at my house I couldn't breathe. I was watching it at home and I was like, oh. like, look at that fucking kick. Oh my God. Dude, that's like taking your, your lungs, kidneys, and intestines and just, I mean, smushing them all together for a brief second. I mean, that is disgusting. And look, his foot is pulled back so you know it's all shin uh. bone. And you know how goddamn hard Mirko kicks. 
I mean, that is the most horrific looking body shot I've ever seen anybody take in a photograph. Dude, it, I mean, you don't see, you see that in like car wrecks. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like he got he looks <laughs> like he it was on a motorcycle and he crashed into a telephone pole that was on the back of a pickup truck. You know, just boom, his whole body just. Oh, that puts any picture. I've got a couple of pictures where I'm taking shots, and that that puts everything I have to shame. I feel I feel like a chump just looking at it. I mean, that is the liver kick. That is oh. the the liver kick. That's all. I mean, it's horrific. Your heart. It's everything. Yeah, it's everything. It, anything Lungs, internal, it's yeah. over. Ribs are probably broken. Probably broke some ribs. I'd like to talk to Heath about that. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. And, and, and you know, we saw that with Machida versus Dalloway. Mm-hmm. Dalloway. Yeah. I mean, it, you know. Dalloway has done such a fantastic job of finally, you know, reaching his potential and showcasing everything he does. And it's so hard for fighters because you want to at least go out there and showcase your skills. And similar to Pettis, but a different style. You know, Taekwondo, now you're looking at at, at karate. Mm-hmm. And a guy who, no telegraph, sends it yeah. right underneath the elbow of your guard, pinpoint accuracy, and the fight is over. I called that fight. It sounded like someone took a two-by-four and just smacked it off this table, and it echoed throughout the stadium. Yeah, I watched oh. that, and as soon as I saw it, the look in his face, I was like, oh, this is probably over. Done. Yeah, he's got that, and he hit him with his shin and, and his instep at the same time. I mean, instep kicks, like a lot of people think that like the foot area is like not as effective, and it's not as hard, but goddamn, it's hard enough to knock you oh. out. I mean, it's still a goddamn bone. You can kick somebody pretty hard. The, 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 the tie style, you could deliver a, a bit more power, but it does take a little more time to get there. And, you know, something's dependent on the athlete, too. Mm-hmm. You know, where I kicked harder more from a, a tie style stance, but I don't have the flexibility of a guy like an Anthony Pettis. Right. And, and you know, what are what are their level, their muscle levers like, too, in their hips? And what's their fast switch muscle fibers like? You know, you, you can pick different styles, but sometimes you get the athletes who did train the perfect styles for their body style, their genetics. And that's where you get the Anthony Pettis's and the Leota Machitas who, who have the, the perfect genetic structure for that as well. Well, there's also this speed that you develop when you do it your whole life that's almost, you almost can't replicate it by starting in your 20s or your 30s and learning martial arts. Absolutely. You know, coming from a wrestling background and then learning how to kick, you're probably never going to be able to kick like Machida no. or like Pettis. You know, no. they, they have this ridiculous speed. It's just it's this weird thing that they can do to their body because their body developed doing that. I mean, they went through maturity doing that. Yeah. Their muscles literally grew onto their bones throwing kicks. Yeah, I mean, lifelong martial arts. You, you, you didn't when, when I was still fighting the UFC, you still had a, a handful of guys that were like me. I mean, I didn't even start thinking about doing this till 26. Never had a first real lesson till I was 27. That's so crazy. And so... Um, I mean, now you got these guys like Rory McDonald. They grew up doing it. Your GSP was one of the first. You know, he was a lifelong martial artist, and that's where you're. You know, Michael Bisping was a lifelong martial artist, and now you're getting guys that are even higher level athletes. Not necessarily a GSP, but higher level athletes that are lifelong martial artists coming into this sport. And I consider wrestlers lifelong martial artists as well. You know, when you're doing that shit since you're five years old, you know, you are. I mean, yeah. to me, wrestling's a martial art. It's one of the best in the in the world. Yeah, one of the mo- I think the most important. If you're a really good wrestler, you dictate where the fight takes place. Absolutely. But the some wrestlers never develop that strike. It's almost like their body's not designed to strike. Like a good example, with all due respect, is Matt Lindland, who's one of the fucking toughest guys to ever fight in MMA. He was a fantastic grappler. I think he won silver. Do you mm-hmm. want silver in the silver, Olympics? Yeah. 
fucking great wrestler. I mean, the guy got a hold of you, manhandled people. But his striking was always fairly awkward on his feet. Never developed like I mean, you, no, you're never going to mistake him for Anderson Silva never. on his feet, and it probably never wasn't available to them. And you wonder, I mean, how much scar tissue they build up in their hips and their shoulders from years and years of wrestling, which I know for me, coming from football and the Marine Corps, you know, even now, I mean, you're supposed to be able to touch one hand behind your head, the other hand behind your back. You should be able to meet your fingers in between your shoulder blades. I mean, I've got like two feet. Yeah, I've got like two feet on work. Give it a shot. Let's see what you can do. One hand behind the head. very sore right shoulder, so I can't do it one way. Yeah, I can do it like this. Can you? Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, a lot of those guys probably can't. I'm almost embarrassed to show mine. Wow, that's crazy, that's dude. All, that's all I got. Mm, and so, I mean, but that's a lot of you have a lot of muscle too, isn't that? Yeah, but I've, sep- I've separated both shoulders, the AC oh. joints, a couple times each, and um, you know, humping with with big packs all the time in the military right. and shit builds up scar tissue all the time. Oh, for sure. And then grappling is the worst on oh. shoulders and knees and and necks and backs and just. After a while, it's everybody's playing Demolition Derby. Yeah. After a while, you know, frames get bent, fucking, you know, things blow out. That's it. And, yeah. And, and you see, that's where you got to get the crafty old veterans who come out there and pull off some sick moves and have their experience to win fights and or they ride off into the sunset. Well, again, with Noguera, the word is that Noguera needs like an hour to get ready just to train. Like he has a guy who travels with him and the guy does massage and stretches him and does all this shit and like literally can't train unless he does this hour-long regimen before he gets in there. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much your body can take, you know, and so many guys have fucking fused joints or fused uh, discs, rather, um, some some guys are getting artificial discs put in. Apparently, they're getting way better at that. I know Braulio Estimos, a world-class jiu-jitsu black belt, he has um, an artificial disc in his neck that somehow or another it rotates and moves well. It's like it's something they do in Europe, and I, I guess they're starting to do it here in America. You know who had one? He had an artificial disc put in his neck. Is the fuck is his name? Freddie Prince Jr., the, uh, the, the actor. actor. Yeah. He's just doing jiu-jitsu. And, uh, I mean, he's really doing jiu-jitsu. Like, you know, he's he's doing a lot of rolling, and apparently he just had neck surgery, and he's showing all these uh, photos of the scar and the neck surgery. And, you know, and uh, he trains down with uh, Henner and Huron and those okay. guys down in Torrance. Yeah. And uh, I asked him about I asked uh, Henner about it. He said, yeah, he's train- he trains hard. He says he's a legit blue belt. No kidding. Yeah, and his neck is Foxville. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, it happens. It happens in this sport for sure. And, you know, it's interesting because when as we talk about this, and, we, and we've talked a lot about the damage, guys, because we, we've gone through all the various techniques. You know, after you had, you know, a discussion with Brendan Schaub, a lot of people came out and they started saying, hey, should we feel bad for talking about this sport? And, I, and I've heard that conversation again, you know, at what point should we feel guilty for watching guys that we know are aging fighters? And, you know, you could do the same thing with football. You could certainly do the same thing in the military where there, there's a lot of traumatic brain injuries taking place in the military as well. One thing that, that I think people forget and, and that I think people need to understand, it's it's not to excuse anything or take away from the conversation it's it's a little bit of a mitigation the the men and women who do sports like this if you take it away from them they're going to find it elsewhere mm-hmm. i mean it's it's a need you know for a guy like me had i not found mixed martial arts i was going to find something there's there's like this drive inside us to do something extreme that makes people raise their eyebrows and say are, are you sure you want it you really are going to do that 
they have that that desire and and it's just a personality trait i mean if if mixed martial arts didn't exist i mean look at cowboy Cerrone, the things he does to to fill that hole in his life and you're going to get a lot of guys that's why guys don't want to retire it's just part of who they are Mm -hmm. we all know the risks we all know everything we're up against we still sign the contract And, and so it's important to remind him that if you know for people that are anti this and anti that you know, we're going to do something like that anyways. We're going to find something else to do. And at some point, we've got to be accountable for our own actions. Well, there's a wide variety of human beings. There's always going to be sedentary people that sit on their couch. There's going to be people who want to fucking rock climb with no ropes. It's just like, you ever see that Alex Honnold guy? The, the free climber guy? Yes. Jesus yes. fucking Christ. We had him on the podcast. He's the most mellow, laid back, super sweet guy. Great to talk to. But this fucking guy, he not only does he climb... These insane peaks that people get scared to climb with ropes. He does it with no ropes. He also takes paths that no one has ever done before. He takes these fucking crazy paths that have never been accomplished by anyone, and he does it with no fucking rope. He, he look at he goes not just straight up. He goes at an angle the wrong way. Like he goes at an angle like fifteen degrees towards him and he climbs look at that i mean that's that's him with ropes you can see a rope there but there's there's video of him climbing this one area look at that right there that's no fucking rope he's got no rope there that's insane he's got no rope and he is incredible he is like what a thousand two thousand feet over the fucking ground holy christ and and the crazy i mean there's 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 nobody around him that i see pushing him oh. you know in terms of hey like i have to do this like you'll see other people that'll do extreme amazing things but there's there's people around them to make them feel more comfortable while doing it you're on your own yeah you know that well, that's he, incredible no he, he lives in his fucking van he has a van he sleeps in his van he's got his little boxes for his like <laughs> underwear and toothpaste and shit and he just sleeps in his van and climbs all the time. Is, has he found a way to monetize him? Is he making any money for climbing this stuff know. at least? I don't know. I mean, I would like to help the guy. But, you know, there's the people that are in that industry, quote unquote, the, the, the free climbing world. They're terrified of him because they're like, well, this guy, it's just, it's a, I mean, there was an interview that uh, I watched on one of those major shows where I found out about him where they said, look, it's not a matter of if he's going to fall. It's a matter of when is he going to fall. You know, he does, he disagrees. He says, I know what I'm doing. Uh, every time I do this, I I plot my strategy. I figure out what path I'm going to take. He does it with ropes first. He maps it all out. And as he's mapping it out, he's climbing up and he's seeing, okay, what, what can I do here? But he even told me, on the podcast, one time he was doing one of these fucking climbs, and he started the climb, got like, you know, X amount of feet up, and realized he forgot his powder. So, you know, they, they put that powder to keep their finger yeah. from slipping. I don't even lift weights without fucking powder. You know, I don't even do kettlebells without this shit. This guy's climbing 5,000 or so, I don't know how many fucking feet he is right here. Like, look at that. I mean, that's ins- that that's view. incredible. He's insane. But he, he did it without fucking powder, got halfway up, ran into some other climbers who couldn't believe he didn't have any ropes. They're like, you're just climbing. They gave him a powder bag, and then he finished the rest of the climb and then left the powder bag at the top for them. I love to put, like, a heart <laughs> monitor on him. It's you know, probably, something that would, like, yeah. show, you know, what's his heart rate at when yeah. he does this? And it's probably something, like, disgustingly low. Yeah, well, he says, it says it's really mellow. He says if your heart gets, if, if there's a moment where your heart's racing, you're probably fucked. 
Like you probably made a really, really, really <laughs> terrible <bad>. mistake. <laughs> Just, but you're, you know, your point is that there's guys that are like that. I mean, w what is more dangerous? Is fighting more dangerous than that? Well, it depends. Right now, fighting's more dangerous until he falls. Then that's way more dangerous. Oh yeah, far more. But there's gonna be there's there's people that have the reason why we have human beings in 2015 is because there's there's a genetic predisposition that some folks have to taking risks, exploring new lands, getting in boats, going across the, the ocean, fighting in battles, conquering new new environments. I mean, it's just a part of being a human. There's a, a drive that some people have, and it sort of speaks to this idea that everyone has a role in this crazy dance that is life. And without each one of us, it would never work. And that all of us somehow or another are integrated as this one gigantic super organism and we're moving humanity towards some ultimate goal. But without these risk takers, without warriors, without people that are willing to climb fucking rocks and all that, sh it, it's, it's a part of who we are. Absolutely. You, you, and you can't, you know, I've heard people say like mixed martial arts should be illegal. I'm like, whoa, whoa, stop. Stop. You can't nerf the fucking world. You're going to die no matter what. Yeah. If you, if you don't get head kicked, you're still going to die. Absolutely. And, and you know, there, there's there's a lot of mitigating factors. But at the end of the day, you know, every fighter chooses to do this. It's on them to do it. And, and you know, gosh, football is way worse. You know, I called one season of college football. There were two games where I saw guys, you know, tibias break in half in one game. The amount of headshots you take if you're a defense or offensive lineman in, in those games. When I played football, which you know, I graduated from the Naval Academy in 03, we didn't have anybody checking if we had any concussions. I was they've Since then, they've uh, banned having a wedge on kickoff return. I was the wedge breaker on kickoff team. So I would take a couple of ephedra, and I would sprint all the way down field, and I'd run right into four dudes standing right next to each other from Notre Dame. I don't stand a chance against these guys. I just got to be a sacrificial lamb to bust this thing up, right? You know, I have no idea if I got a concussion doing that. I know it didn't feel good. What? Uh, what how does ephedra help? I, I, who knows? Get your heart beating real fast. We thought it's just placebo. Oh, ephedra is like a stimulant? Is yeah. That, remember, they, they all, it's like a, a ton of caffeine. Right, they, they banned right. it shortly after. We couldn't even use it anymore. I think my senior year it was banned. It was I taken took out all supplements. A jujitsu class once after I took a couple of rip fuels, and I almost had a fucking heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? I shit? remember rip fuel. That shit used to be legal. Yeah. You used to be able to go to GNC and buy crank. You, you, you mean, could get it like Sam's Sam's Club. It's fucking crank. I mean, it was yeah. the most. Your heart would be, and you feel like you could fucking run through a wall. It was so <laughs> retarded that that stuff was completely legal. It's a very, very bizarre uh, thing that, I mean, if you look at the 2003, when you're talking about when you were playing football, you look at that and you look at the reality of today. Well, what are you showing us here, Jamie? Oh. No, I didn't see it. You didn't tell me you, you were going to show me anything. You just got destroyed. Oh, my God. You just flew through the air. Yeah, that'll ruin your day. Oh, dude. Look at him. Yeah. Look at him. Yeah. <laughs> and then he collapses and everybody cheers well and, and back then i mean there was no protocols like when i played yeah. i played six years of pop warner football and one of the drills we'd do for our tackling drills two times a week we'd line up the whole team in one line the first guy to get the ball you gotta run through each guy individually one-on-one -on -one. just run hit run oh hit God. run hit. pop warner's we, little kids you got we got a bunch of dads or just guys from the neighborhood that volunteer i mean they don't know anything about football they don't know anything 
Isn't it incredible that human beings have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and it was 2003. That's only 12 fucking years ago. Nobody knew that you were getting concussions all the time, and this could be bad. Oh, yeah. That that doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? It doesn't, but you know, it's funny. I mean, it opens up a whole other door. We are still so primal. For as advanced as we are technologically, when you look at what's taking place in the world right now, and... And how easy it still is for people to take lives. You know, I've seen studies on chimpanzees where they they have murder with chimps and things like that. And so some scientists will argue that it's kind of, you know, predetermined in our genetics and in our DNA that, you know, we're aggressive. We're going to do things like this. But, I mean, there's still a lot of primal qualities that we have in humanity. I mean, you look at what took place in France today. What happened? So in France... Three guys who, who are expected to be Muslim because they were, they were chanting Muslim chants and they went in. They, they did an attack on a French magazine that does frequent cartoons, um, you know, basically making fun of the Muslim religion. And so these guys attacked it, separated everybody, and executed, I believe, nine people. And then on the way out, till, killed two more police officers. And, and these three men, you know, they, they, they think they, they haven't released a lot of information on them. But they went in there like they were trained military. It didn't look like your average, you know, typical terrorist who got recruited online, found a gun, and went and shoot somebody. It wasn't the uh, the two brothers who made a pot bomb up right. in Boston. These dudes knew what they were doing. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's huge news. To couple with that, you know, it's getting less news. I think there was a, a, a suicide bomb in Yemen that killed 30 people. This is incredible. The parachuting suspects are still at large. Two of them are still at large. And this was all over making fun of a fucking religion. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. They, they, in fact, one of them, I think they showed one of the, one of the cartoons. And the main cartoonist, they, they, they knew her by name. They knew people by name separated. They made sure she was killed. Um, but she even did one on Muhammad. Oh, God. And, and so. What a crazy religion where you can't even draw their guy. I mean, you could you could have. I mean, Sam Kennison, who used to be a preacher, had Jesus Christ jokes about him getting nailed to the cross. I mean, he had jokes about Jesus Christ, about his wife, you know, saying he's a loser, and you're hanging out with the, the twelve apostles. They're losers. Your friends are losers. Yeah. You know, he, he mocked, openly mocked this religion that you know he used to be a part of. No repercussions. You draw Muhammad, just draw him, and you're fucking. You know, you're suspect or you're uh, subject to this kind of shit. It's incredible. It, it's, uh, you know, it, it never in my life, and, and obviously I haven't been everywhere, so I, I'm pretty well traveled. I've just, I've never been anywhere like my time in the Middle East where, where I've seen, not everybody, but certain people value human life so little. So little. And, and it's a really hard thing to comprehend when you're there, and, and you try with a language barrier to understand it more. And the only thing I was able to conclude was that, you know, th- this certain population has been so accustomed to violence for so many centuries that uh, their endurance for it is so much greater than Western civilization. And, and that, is, that is part of the problem with us getting involved in conflicts over there. Where, look, you know, they're going to replenish their forces. Every time someone turns 16, they're going to join the ranks or, or whatever age it may be. Whereas, you know, here, um, we're not able to do that. You know, our, you know, in order to be, you know, Sun Tzu had a great point. In order to be successful in a military campaign, you need three things. You need the people, you need the government, and you need the military. Without all three synchronized, you will not be successful. If you lose one of them, it's out. And, and you could see Vietnam, you could see Iraq. When the people get disgusted, 
then it becomes a problem and it's going to pull back the government and then, you know, the military is going to pull back and really you're going to see us get outlasted. Now I'm not making the argument that we belonged and, you know, that's a whole other bag of worms we can get there, but you know, over there, they know we're setting dates for when we're going to withdraw. I mean, they're just so much more used to violence that, that not, and I shouldn't generalize everybody, but, but the, the, the units, you know, Al Qaeda, Taliban, uh, they're so used to violence that they can stomach it, and and they're just it's just the way they've always lived. Well, it's like you were saying about guys like Habib Nurmagomedov growing up in Dagestan and growing up in these really harsh environments. It, they they become tougher people. We're so used to a certain easy way of life that these folks have this much more intense, much more dangerous environment that they live in and that is normal to them and when people grow up in certain environments that becomes how they live and we're adaptable as hell oh yeah i mean you look at one of the one of the most disturbing when when i try to explain because people will forget um or they'll they'll take for granted i should say how evil uh, or or what kind of evil does exist in the world and and people will talk about ISIS and you know uh you know Ben Affleck made a comment they couldn't even fill a baseball stadium you know a double a ball stadium or something like that they're not a threat people will take for granted you know the the type of evil that does exist in the world and it's not just obviously in the muslim culture i just you know as an example it exists it exists plenty in africa as well in certain areas but one video I'll tell people you know check out and it's not for everybody but if you look at a video of the Dagestani massacre which which happened in Dagestan where Chechen uh rebels uh massacred Russian soldiers and they basically one by one while they're alive behead them where it takes a long and I mean the video is disgusting I don't re- recommend anybody here who's listening this go watch it this is when I get into intense debate with people that I know are mature enough to handle it and, and are trying to understand certain things. I'll, I'll recommend, you know, if you want to understand this a little bit, take a look at this. I mean, it's hard to watch, to understand that that exists and to imagine that a human being is capable not only of doing it once, but repeatedly and talking casually like we are right now while they're doing it, while someone squirms on the ground being decapitated. That takes something inside that, that is sickening. That is frightening. And it exists throughout human history. It it's, does. It's a quality Absolutely that does. human beings can tap into and almost in a way that animals can't. It's almost in the, the, the mind has, the, the human mind has this ability to compartmentalize and to rationalize and to be capable of things that even animals aren't, aren't capable of doing. Animals yeah. kill to eat or occasionally the intelligent animals like chimpanzees, you know, they, they'll kill to protect environments or property overthrow overthrow the alpha yeah but what these these are this is a different thing i mean this is this is ritualized killing this is this is killing on a level that the the justification of that is is it's hard to comprehend for the average person that lives in a nice you know community and goes to the supermarket and likes to go to a restaurant and order a glass of wine clink glasses and this is like, well, I support war. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Do you know what war is? Yeah. You've, you know? No idea. Yeah. No idea. I mean, and it's not just, you know, I certainly don't want people at home to think we're generalized in the Middle East. I mean, you can go to Rwanda and look at what took place in Rwanda. Sure. Look what takes place in Sudan every single day. You know, and it's sad because you talked about how we're this this, this uh, global race of beings that all have a place at the table to, to progress ourselves. Yet there's still so many things, you know, that show that we, we are still very primal. 
Well, there's areas of the world that just have not caught up yet. No. And there's areas of the world that give us a window into the past, or what it must have been like to live thousands of years ago. When you hear about all these barbaric events that happen in human history that most people just like to look at and go, oh, those were the Dark Ages. This was, you know, back in Genghis Khan's day. This was back when Alexander the Great was around. No, 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 no. It's the fucking Congo in yeah. 2015. If you were there right now in, in, in one of those areas where warlords are t tearing into villages and macheting peoples to death, you would watch exactly what, it, what would have happened a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago. I mean, the only difference is these people have clothes that were made in a factory and machetes that were made in a factory and guns. Yeah. Other than that, it's human barbarism. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very disconcerting for a lot of people because you know you when you're a child, especially well, I I was a kid. I'm 47, and when I was um, I, I don't know how old I was. I was probably like nine or something maybe 10 when the vietnam war ended i don't know what but i was living in california and i remember it was on tv it was on the news where america's pulling out of the vietnam war and i, I remember thinking as a little kid well this is great and this glad we figured out that war is bad and we're never going to do this again because everybody really hates war we're moving on i remember having this idea in my mind as a child that we are evolving past war and this is good that i grew up in a day you know because i talked to uh my stepdad you know he he was worried about getting drafted and never did and there's a, a people in my neighborhood that uh had been to vietnam and i talked to them about it and everybody was almost unanimous that we shouldn't have been there and that war is bad and then i was a kid i was maybe 21 when we went into the first gulf war yep. and i remember watching it on tv with my roommate and me and my uh my friend jimmy my roommate we were like holy fucking shit we're doing it again couldn't believe it, but it was that long stretch that america had not been in like a real quote-unquote war we had gone through some military actions a lot of covert shit a lot of things that weren't in the news on a daily basis and so people weren't really aware of how the world works and how how much bloodshed is required in order to keep peace in certain areas and then all of a sudden it's on again yeah and i remember thinking i can't believe this you know and it's interesting too because you know people people don't bring this up often could you imagine what would happen if if our navy was so downsized that they no longer patrolled the waters what, what would oil prices be like shipping lane because piracy is still a, a problem oh, yeah. and and we end up doing most uh, or not, we do a lot of policing you know out there in the seas with with constant deployments of our navy and uh it's it's crazy, but the world, you know, and, and, and you know, it's interesting. I got in a discussion with a, with a Harvard law grad today about it. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, had we not gone in the, in the Middle East and interfered, would that have prevented a lot of the terrorist attacks that we've taken place? You know, and, and she threw that out there. And I said, well, you know, this attack happened in France. How much involvement has France had in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah. You know, and, and so it's hard to ever comprehend at this point. But there there is a lot of violence in the world, and there's a hatred that we can't comprehend, like the way that the Al Qaeda in Iraq, when I was there, hated us. We in America could never comprehend that kind of hatred. We don't even know what it's like. I didn't know what it was like. I couldn't imagine. I mean, to the point where you are willing to not only try to kill me, but you'll kill innocent children just to get at me and have no issues doing it. You'll repeatedly try to do that that 
what that does to the mind, you know, and people will look at post-traumatic stress and, and it, the mind's not meant to, to, to handle all of that, especially when it's a young kid, you know, who's 18, 19 years old, who most likely came from, you know, a, a pretty poor background. That's the reason they decided to enlist in the military during a time of two wars. So it, it's, it, it's an unbelievable debate and discussion that's going to take place for years. And, and we'll never, you know, we'll never fully know because, of course, there, there's so much politics at play with it as well that clouds the, the overall analysis of what truly takes place. Um, and, and, you know, that goes into a whole other discussion on, on how, you know, certain um, policies are made, you know, based on political timelines, vice when they're actually needed. Well, that's also one of the, the true horrors about drones that is, is constantly up for debate because drones are so nonspecific. There's so many people that have been killed by drones that were absolutely innocent. A lot of them children, a lot of them women, a lot of them completely, you know, civilians. And that a lot of people on the other side would say, well, what you're talking about, these horrific things, they're done by the United States, but they're done in this weird way with a robot that flies in the sky and shoots missiles. It's it's sterilized in the sense that it's not like the, you know these uh, these Russians you know killing Chechen rebels or R- Chechen rebels killing Russians with a knife. It's 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 sterilized in in the sense that no one has to get blood on their hands. Mm-hmm. They're, they're using a remote control. They're watching a monitor. They're pressing a button. But the same result is taking place. Certainly, certainly, and I mean the the end result is 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 human life has been has been terminated. Did you when you enlisted and you went over was this a part of like sort of the same drive that lead that led you to be a fighter? You know, I think so. You know, for me, I was in high school at the time and I was getting recruited by a bunch of different schools to play football. And I kind of already had a sense that that I really would like to attend a military academy, but then um, I also started getting heavily recruited by a lot of Ivy League schools, and, and my education mattered. I looked at some of the graduation rates of some of the other, you know, Division One A schools recruiting me in you know, West Virginia and Maryland, and the graduation rates were low. And I, I knew, look, I'm not going to go play professional football. I need to go somewhere where I'm going to get an education. And the Naval Academy was free. You don't get a full, you don't get a scholarship to an Ivy League school. So my mom, who was a home health nurse, isn't going to be able to afford to send me to Yale, even with the financial aid. So I went to the Naval Academy, and also. I've always been a pretty intense guy who took things more seriously maybe than they needed to be taken. And so I thought, look, this is a place I'm going to go and I'm going to get along with the people better. But when I was there initially, it was time of peace. You graduated, you either went in the Navy or the Marine Corps, and you would deploy. You'd go on a boat, you'd float around a bunch of cities for six to seven months, have a good time, then come home, then maybe do one more, then move to a different duty station. It wasn't the same. When I was a junior is when 9-11 happened. And shit changed forever. It was never the same. And then the, the second Iraq war, it actually started when I was a senior. So I had friends that were in the, you know, initial wave into the second Iraq war that I played football with, um, you know, before I'd even graduated. So you didn't necessarily sign up to go to war. You signed up because you felt like those were people that you would relate to more. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, I, I bought into the whole package, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I knew, look, you know, um, inside I felt like I was a warrior at the time and this is where I belonged and this is where, you know, my, my leadership skills can be honed and I can develop and this is where I should be. When the war started, you know, I could have easily chosen to go, you know, I could have gone surface warfare and been on a boat and been pretty much away from the fight. You know, I chose to go Marine Corps, chose to go infantry, you know, and, and chose to be there where I already had friends that were there. You know, there was no way 
I wasn't going to be a guy who, who served at that time. What was it that drew you into doing infantry? What was it like what when you decided when you made that commitment? Like what was what was on your mind? You know, I couldn't see any other choice. You know, I, I would feel guilty had I not. You know, before I had ever even gone to infantry officer school, um, Ronnie Winchester, who played offensive tackle first when I was a sophomore, he was killed. Um, and then while I was in infantry officer course, a guy I graduated, J.P. Blacksmith, he was killed in Fallujah. So, I mean, there was a time period there for several years where when guys called that we hadn't heard from in a while, we almost didn't want to pick up the phone. You know, it was, it was really, it was a really difficult time. Um, but, but that's, that's war. I mean, it's, it's ugly. It, it sucks. There's, there's nothing fun about it. And, and, you know, a pet peeve of mine is a lot of other cultures and even sometimes, you know, in our own, they make these assumptions about the men and women that go to war. You know, I actually got asked in, in line to a weigh-in when I was in Japan. I'm not even going to name the fighter because I don't want to insult anybody. He looks at me and says, while we're waiting, we're about to go weigh-in. He's like, Brian, you know, how do you justify going to Iraq and just killing generations of people? And I was like, well, I think you're a little misinformed. And, and I'm certainly willing to have that discussion with you. Um, but I don't think now is the appropriate time. He's like, well, I'm fucking nosy. So that's exact quote. I'm nosy. So, you know, let's, I'm asking about it. And so, you know, I mean, it's the, the, the happiest moments of, you know, my, especially my second tour, there were two schools in our area of operations that never had school because if if the teachers taught, they'd be killed. Al Qaeda would kill them immediately if they taught those students. And this area had never been patrolled before. So we started patrolling it. We started securing it. Five months into our deployment, we had the area so secure that these kids were able to go to school again. And that was a really proud day. I mean, it wasn't, it's not what a lot of people think where, you know, we go over there and all we want to do is kill, kill, kill. I mean, 90%, I mean, you don't even see the enemy in these kinds of wars. It's snipers, it's IEDs, it's, it's, it's unseen enemies. You're walking the streets trying to help these people, getting blown up and shot at, you know, where, where you can't even tell where it's coming from in, in, in most of these scenarios. And really what we found, because the doctrine for this kind of war was never written, the military had to adapt to it. And we had to create this new counterinsurgency warfare. The key was the people. Whoever owned the trust of the people won the conflict because the people, if they trusted you, would then give you the intel necessary to find out where Al-Qaeda is coming in from and who they're influencing, who they're using there, who their informants are, how to catch them, what time you can catch them. And that was the main factor. By month six over there, we were literally getting names and full descriptions of who was coming in and we had snatched up 30 guys in a month. You know, it was because the people at that point trusted us and believed, hey, you know what? These guys are helping us. They're injecting money into our economy, helping us reopen the shops. They're securing the school so the kids can go to school. They're helping to clean up the garbage. They're really here to help. And that's what made the biggest difference. It was more shaking hands than it ever was pulling triggers. Yet I can't tell you how many comments, you know, the biggest hatred I'll receive both social media and even just in the fight world in general from mostly foreign culture, sometimes even ours in America, is I'll get called a murderer. And look, I don't don't take it personally because I know the truth. Obviously, I'm securing that. But there's a lot of misinformation out there. That's um, that's the the main representation um, of of people that go to war is that you're over there, you're invading this country. You never hear that 
you're you're getting the support of the people and that that's how you win those fights that's how you win those battles you you always hear like we're invading in this country they don't want us there you're dealing with a muslim country but even in these this country this these islamic countries these people that practice the islamic religion are still against these radical fundamentalist people that are throwing acid in the face of the children that are trying to go to school and trying to keep women from driving cars and all the, the, the crazy shit that we keep hearing about. So how much conflict is there, like, inter-religion conflict? I mean, it seems like there, there must, be, it must be very difficult for these people in this Islamic country to take trust in these soldiers that come over from America. Oh, Absolutely, especially when you first get there and you go to an area that's never been patrolled before. You know, in, in any, you know, any screw-up that takes place, you know, if, 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 uh, if something happens and there, there is collateral damage, if there, you do get into a firefight, the enemy only attacks you when you're surrounded by civilians. And so if something bad does happen, it will set you back weeks, months, could even be years in the conflict. And, and so... And that goes against the maybe the 350 positive things that that took place at that time. But there were a lot of people, at least, you know, I could speak from my perspective in the two area of operations I operate. And there were a lot of people that wanted us to be there. There were a lot of people that had smartphones and a lot of people that saw how people live in other civilizations and were fed up with having corrupt governments, you know, that that were that were basically taking from them at all times and using them as pawns. And they wanted to live that kind of life. And they get angry when these extremist groups set back their religion and, and even just their culture. You know, when you see something like what happened in Paris, you know, we talked about that. That's going to bring back everybody saying, hey, you know, uh, the entire Islam religion is completely evil. You know, you're going to get Bill Maher out there saying it again and again and again. There are people in the Muslim religion that don't believe like that. They, they don't believe in that. And they're not extremists. But it's, it's, this, it's this horrible conflict that we're dealing with right now. Um, and like so many others, we're not capable of having good open discussion. You get someone who believes in this ideology all the way at the far end of the table. Then you get the other person who believes this here. And for some reason, both of them think they're hundred percent right, which is absolute insanity. I mean, what argument have you ever been in where you're hundred percent right? Yeah. Well, especially when it comes to something like religion, you know, and Islamic religion, in general, it's such a, such an old religion, and it's got so many. When you look at so many interpretations. Yeah, yeah. The, the look at you look at the, the the Quran and you look at all the 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 various things that people fight for and people that believe uh, you know just our doctrine like you know the 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 way women are supposed to be treated, the way gays are supposed to be treated, the, all, those things. I mean, you're you're talking about some shit that's been around for thousands of years, and it's it's so hard. To, to move past that stuff it's so hard when when that's ingrained in a culture and people are fighting for it and willing to die for it that's it's it's so difficult to re restructure that oh absolutely absolutely and, and yet we still you know we continue to try it's it's interesting when you look at history like of afghanistan so but we only try when there's resources there oh that's certainly it's really fucked up i mean we're, we really only we really only get concerned about people's well-being when we can make some money out of the situation there, there, there's got to be yeah exactly there, there's got to be some kind of political agenda involved which is you know, it's it's one of the more frustrating you see. Yeah, one more one of the more frustrating things you see in American politics, where I just rip my hair out. Yeah, if we found a fucking gigantic plot of oil under North Korea, things would get very juicy very quickly. 
If we found out like tomorrow that there's a fucking hundred trillion dollars worth of oil in North Korea, there's a very particularly unusually rich mine of oil, we'd be like, oh shit, we'd cut off their fucking internet, <laughs> we'd cut off their electricity. I mean, shit would get crazy really quickly if they found out that all the world's you know resource supplies, you know, as far as like natural gas, oil, whatever the fuck we need was is in North Korea. We could, the whole world could live fine. We'd be there. Well, you know, and one of the other things, though, too, is that we get the double-edged sword where if we don't go, we're criticized. When we go, we're criticized. So, I mean, we're, you know, it's, you know, there, there's always a lot more details, and we're not privy to all the intel reports. You know, when people, like when the, the Syrian rebellion started, and people asked, you know, hey, should we go into Syria? Should we supply them with weapons? What should we do? You know, we're basing our assumptions off what the media tells us, which there's so much bullshit wrapped up in that as well. We're not privy to all the intel that people in the Pentagon are getting. Um, so it's really hard for us to speculate on what we should do. But in the end, we ended up arming a whole lot of people. And a, 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 at least a decent-sized portion of those people ended up being ISIS. You know, which... Not crazy. It's, 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 it's crazy at the level of, you know, where's the accountability in that? Well, it's almost like, you know, what you're saying is like, that the the average person is not privy to the information that the Pentagon is getting, but the Pentagon is not. They're not there. Like, don't you really have to be there to get like hands-on information? And who the fuck can do that other than the people that are directly interacting with them? And they're not dictating policy. What are they doing? They're 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 Just feeding information. Feeding information. They're following orders. They're fighting battles and. You know, ultimately, you got two people that are against each other. They don't speak the same fucking language. You're you're in a country that you know ideally we shouldn't be in the first place, and you know people are trying to kill everybody. The whole thing is fucking crazy. And to to be able to try to make sense out of that, the only thing that gives me any hope whatsoever is the idea that over time, logic and reason and education will work out. And as long as we're on the right side of all that, that with all the blunders and the mistakes and all the the the, the 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 friendly fire and all the uh, civilian casualties that are unfortunate that over time logic and reason will settle all these issues but that doesn't you see shit, shit like that happening today in France it doesn't seem like that's no. the case it, it seems like we're going to go birth to grave and live in this fucking crazy world of bombs and bullets and and then we're going to we're going to end, and our generation, the next generation, is going to have to fucking pick up and carry the ball. Yeah, and it's going to fuel the argument of, hey, look, you know, and, and, and of course, me having gone to Iraq, I would, you know, I, I would love to believe that whether we should have been there or not, at least going kept the violence there on us who signed up for it, vice, you know, here on, 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 on our land, et cetera. You know, you, you like to hope that's true because you, you've had so many friends that you've lost doing it. Right. But, uh, you know, when you see things like what happened in Paris, that's going to fuel the argument of, well, you know, we have to be in these countries to control these things because they hate us so much that they're willing to go to extremes that, that we're not. You know, ISIS, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they're never going to stop hating Western civilization. They're never going to stop attacking us. Um you know, uh, Palestine and Israel are never going to stop going back and forth, which is one of the reasons they hate us anyways because of our support of Israel as well. It is such a complex scenario that, I mean, you, you could discuss it with scholars for hours and hours, um, and, and you wonder when we're going to find a better way to solve these problems. Yeah, if, if ever. And, you know, every time something looks cool, like Muammar Gaddafi getting killed, I mean, you watch that crazy footage of those guys sticking knives up his oh, ass. Oh, yeah. You know, killing him, and you're like, well, they got rid of that asshole. 
Libya's way more fucked up it, now. Who's running it? Yeah, exactly. We spent, you know, you know, that's that's one of one of my I mean, we spend a lot of money, a lot of money on some, you know, and on some really stupid stuff too. I don't know if you if you had a chance to take a look at um uh what Rand Paul was posting, he was airing some grievances and he was talking about millions we expend to like you know, monitor monkeys throwing, I don't know, throwing feces. I mean, weird, weird things that we actually legitimately did spend money on, which is just out of this world. But we spent a lot of money on what we did in Libya. We have no, does this administration, do they have any idea who's in control of that? We did something similar in Egypt too. I mean, it's just the, 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 the accountability and the dollar spent, you know, it's very frustrating. Yeah. And incredibly frustrating. And it's also, it's hard for people that are in America who live this life of privilege, this easy first world civilization that we have, it's hard for us to even understand that there's these things going on in these other countries. We see it on television, we read about it in the news, but to actually witness it, it's it's so difficult for us to to even comprehend war. You, you've been there. You, you, you've taken part in it. You've been there. You've been boots on the ground. You've experienced it. You've lost friends. Your perspective, it must be so difficult to communicate with someone who has this idealistic point of view where they've, they're completely insulated from the reality of what a war actually is. It's, it's very hard. It's very hard. And at the same time, you have to fight against your own, your own bias because when, when you do go to war, um, of course you want to believe that you were there for all the right reasons. You know, you don't want to believe any of the conspiracy theories, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to read all the, you know, hey, now we're seeing lessons learned. You know, was the Iraq war a complete waste? And, you know, when you, when you saw as we've withdrawn and, and what's taken place in Iraq, to, to people like me and, and all my friends and, 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 you know, my generation of military that have gone over there, I mean, that's heartbreaking to see it begin to collapse and violence spike to the levels that it, that that have, that have started since ISIS has been born. And again, the argument: well, if we never went over in the first place, and ISIS would never been born. But had we never left prematurely, they they probably wouldn't have been born either. There's so many ways you can go with it, and everybody wants to be right. You know, I don't think anybody truly has all the information to say exactly what would have been the right decision. But it, it's all just really, really sad. And and we we elect people to make these decisions for us. And, you know, I, I can't say that I feel comfortable with all those people in there. You know, I, I feel like the private sector is much more accountable today than the government sector. I mean, it's easy to get fired in the private sector. You either deliver towards the bottom line or you don't and you go away. In the public sector, you can do all kinds of stuff and still get reelected. Yeah, I mean, Marion Barry came back as the mayor of Washington D.C. after he got caught smoking crack. He came back and won. That—that's an extreme example, obviously. But the—the the shit that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about, and then you compare it to what we do know about. You got a guy like Dick Cheney, who is the CEO of Halliburton, a company that's—they make their money off of rebuilding shit that he blew up. And then he gets into office, and he's the fucking vice president. And also, we're blowing shit up, and Halliburton is getting these, 
huge fucking no bid contracts. There's no no one competing against them, and they're making billions of dollars rebuilding. And if you talk to the people that are involved in the rebuilding, they're like, "Look, we're just putting fucking water treatment plants and factories in place that we don't even they don't even need. They're not even going to use, but we have the contracts to do them. So we're building this shit. So we could submit it and we can get paid. So we yeah. can submit an invoice. Yeah, it's it's. It's sad. And look, you know, people love to point um, at America, at our corruption. But, you know, we talked about, I mean, there's corruption at every single level, every single, you know, when you put money and power on the line, does something to a human being. Yeah, power. It does something to them. Especially power. I mean, that's my argument when all this police brutality shit's going on and everybody's like, hey, you know, the police need to be accountable. Yes, they they absolutely do. Here's part of the problem. I don't think anybody is fucking qualified to be a cop. I think when you're a cop for 20, 30 years and you're dodging bullets and every fucking door you open up, every domestic s- dispute, some chick might stab you in the neck for arresting her husband that beat the shit out of her. I mean, people are fucking crazy. You're dealing with worst case scenario almost every day. And I think we we want cops to be better at their job. We don't want cops to kill people, but... I really don't know how many people are qualified for that fucking job. I don't know how many people can do it. Well, and it's not like we get the same caliber person that goes on to be a doctor that ends up being and going to be a police officer. No. It's a very difficult. It's like you said. It's a very difficult job, but they're human. Yeah, they're and human. we are we are flawed. I mean, we are we are all completely flawed, and it's uh, yeah. I mean that that's that's been a, a frustrating thing. You know, in this country where we see this argument, and, and that goes back to what I talked about before, depending on what news station you go on, you get one side completely over here, then you get the other side completely over there, and nobody willing to really discuss this middle area. Because yes. both sides make really good points in certain areas, but nobody wants to discuss the Wait, hey, guys, there is a possibility that both of you guys are right in certain areas, mm-hmm. and maybe if we can come to terms on this, we could actually fix the problem. I really felt that with Ferguson. With Ferguson, I felt like, God damn, everybody's digging their line in the sand. And there's people on one side that think that the the, ju- the killing was unjustified and that that cop should have been tried and should go to jail. and But they're unwilling to look at the fact that that guy robbed a fucking convenience store m- moments before he was shot. That guy definitely tried to get the gun from the cop. I mean, he had uh, uh, he he was shot in his fucking hand. Th- that he was trying, he was at close range in this cop's car, and they're like, "Look at his face. The cop was barely hit." Now you know as well as I know, you could go through a fucking five round fight and look like you were not barely hit. Meanwhile, you're getting rocked. Like yeah. sometimes swelling takes you know hours to show up. Sometimes people don't they don't swell. Sometimes you get caught clean and there's no mark on you. You get knocked out cold and you look fine. Like this idea that he should have a fucking hatchet wound in his forehead before he, he's pulling the trigger on this kid. The, the, then you look at the other side that says, well, these are terrible people and they, you know he should have been shot because he was a, a bad person. Okay, what would you be like if you grew up in that environment? Absolutely. What would you be like if you were that kid in that fucking impoverished neighborhood with no hope, everyone around you is doing drugs, everyone around you is involved in crime? That's the real fucking problem. The real problem is you're wasting the potential of this young human being because he's being forced to develop in this horrible situation that nobody seems to have any incentive to go in and try to fix. Nobody is talking about going into these neighborhoods and trying to clean them up and using massive federal resources and money to try to try to calm these fucking places down and try to give these people some hope. 
I mean, yep. there's both sides. Oh, absolutely. Are digging their their heels in the sand. And we ask these police officers to do an awfully tough job. You know, they they don't they're not going to get credit for all the everyday right things they're going to do. But right. when when it hits the fan and they got to make the really tough decision, we scrutinize the living hell out of them. Oh, for sure. And, and it becomes very difficult. But I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, th- there's. Gosh, I, I, I try to say that I hate both political parties equally, um, you know, just because of the, the, the lack of integrity. I tend in, in a lot of areas to lean more towards a conservative side, but then there's some areas where, you know, I've got completely liberal views as well. Um, but on this one, you know, when you really look, and I've had these, these great conversations with, with kids who did grow up in neighborhoods like this, and you try and have these discussions and you look at it and you look at it, the one thing that you can look at to say, you know, at least one thing that can be the equalizer is education. You know, where I live in, I live in a suburb, North Atlanta, and, and the school districts by where I live are the best in the state. Now, if I had to send my kids to a South Fulton County, which is in South Atlanta, to one of those public schools, there's no way in hell I'd send my daughters there. No way. Both public schools, both funded by taxes, but the difference is completely different. Isn't I mean, one fucked? One is a platinum-level school, and the other one is an, I mean, D minus level school. And so these kids who don't have a choice to which parents they're born or which household they're born into are forced, if they, if they, if they already have parents that were caught in a poverty cycle that don't have a whole lot of education and perspective, so their home life isn't great, then they go to a school that's not so great. And, and then you've got the, the criminal justice system that can continually just recycles and we, we, we put them in jail. I mean, it's, it's a situation where the odds are not in their favor. And if there's one, you know, if there's two things that in, in this country that we should have with all the money we have and that we send overseas, I mean, one of them should definitely be platinum schools. Our, our schools should be phenomenal. You know, you've got this tenure thing, which makes it really hard to fire a bad teacher. You know, the whole system needs to be reformed badly because education could be that great equalizer regardless of what ethnicity you are. And when you find out how much teachers get paid, I mean, I know UFC fighters complain about pay. Find out how much a fucking teacher gets paid. Jesus Christ. They're, they're making a teacher's salary in one night. It's, but, it, it, I mean, obviously you can't compare the two, but you, 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 you have to look at the just the sheer ridiculousness of teacher salaries and the idea that this is these are the people that are supposed to literally teach our children the skills they need to get through life successfully. And we're we're giving them no incentive. We're we're asking them to do it almost against their best interest financially. We're almost at look. I know you're smart. I know you have all this education. I know you could probably make a lot of money going and working for some company that's very profitable. But you know you want to be a teacher. Guess what? You're gonna make thirty five grand a year, and you know you're gonna you're gonna have months off. And you know while you're in school, you know you're gonna fucking deal with the dregs of society's children, people that you know have all sorts of criminal pasts and all sorts of drug problems and violence. And these kids are gonna grow up with violence, and you're gonna be forced to corral them and try to wrangle them in class. I mean, I've seen videos of of uh, teachers getting assaulted in classes where you know uh, there was some video where some girl jumped up out of her seat and started beating the shit out of this teacher, and the teacher started fighting back, and then other kids jumped the teacher and. Just fucking chaos. You imagine you're doing this for thirty five grand a year or whatever the fuck they're getting paid. Yeah. My my older sister, she was a teacher for years. She left because of that reason. She wasn't getting paid very much. And then any time that she had a problem with a student, if the parent got involved, the administration would normally take the side of the parent and the student. And and she wasn't allowed 
to, to actually teach and, and discipline a child who was putting up their own barriers to their education. It became very frustrating for her. Yeah, and you're dealing with, you know, you deal with a kid, get a kid that's 16 years old, 16 years of conditioning, of life, of experiences, and all the stuff that they're getting from their home. I mean, you can only guess. You can only guess as to what, what their background is like. It's her, It's really horrific in a lot of ways that we have... The the one thing that is just so important is human beings, like the d- developing human beings. I mean, if you want to, I've always said this: if you want to have a culture with less losers, like w- wouldn't that be like the best way to keep America strong? Develop less losers. Well, where do you develop less losers? You fucking go with children. You try to figure out what's the best way to develop children, and it's one of the least the areas where we put the least amount of resources in this country. And when you look at, it, I mean, what is it? Less than fifty percent of people pay their taxes. Is that true? It's it's somewhere around that. Look up that stat if you can. But I mean, there, <laughs> there's a big percentage of people that don't pay their taxes, and so you get a lot of people to complain. You know. Guy, guys, like, I don't even want to know what you pay in taxes. I know I pay a lot in taxes, and it sucks every time you got to write that check. You're paying a ton in taxes. But imagine what it's like if you got a lot of people that, that vice living off the government are now providing for themselves and paying taxes. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's what you said, you know, having a country with less losers, and it really, the key is education. Yeah, I I don't get the—I know there's a lot of people that have a gigantic issue. What are you looking it up? A lot of people have a gigantic issue with taxes, and my my issue is waste and fraud. My issue is bureaucracy. My issue is the the amount of people that have jobs that only exist because the the, the government's trying to create jobs for these people because this is sort of some way to feed into the economy. And there's a bunch of unnecessary fucking jobs. There's a bunch of laws that shouldn't exist. There's a bunch of people reinforcing those ridiculous jobs and reinforcing those ridiculous laws, and that becomes a job. It becomes an industry. I mean, the war on drugs is a perfect example of that. And I think that if we could figure out a way to utilize taxes in some sort of an efficient and equitable way, I'm all for paying taxes. I mean, I pay them anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to not do it. I'm not going to jail. I'm not... Wesley Snipes in it and just yeah. trying to avoid taxes and they they locked up Lauren Hill from the fucking Fugees like she's some sort of a threat to the the, the general peace of our culture. It's you know and it's forty six percent is that what it says forty six percent of American households won't pay federal income taxes in two thousand that was two thousand eleven it's probably even higher now still yeah still pretty high but it, you know it's interesting you say that because <laughs> um, you know when 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 you look at at lockups so. There's 50 new crime laws on average made a year, which is about a total of 4,500 laws, which is 2,700 pages of criminal laws. And then over 50% of the, the jailed population are, are over drugs for nonviolent crimes. God. You know, we've got, in America, we've got 5% of the world's population, 25% though of the world's prisoners. Are in America. Isn't that incredible? It's um, and, and 53% of the people that go to jail are beneath the poverty line. 53% are below the poverty line. As if you expect people that are just scratching by to follow the rules. But, I mean, how do you fix that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at what, you know, when you look at Brazil, for instance, where the, the, the we think that there's a, a gap between the haves and have-nots in America. It's enormous in Brazil. Yes, it is. It is enormous. And it's funny because when you, human beings, we have ingenuity. 
I mean, it's like you talk about, we, we have a drive for discovery. We will find a way. And when you when you have that poverty trap in certain areas, they're going to find a way. And in, in Brazil, in some of those favelas, they found a black market, illegal way of sustaining life. And, yes. and, and it's very difficult there. I mean, where these favelas in the hills, I mean, those police don't have a whole lot of control over those. Yeah. If any at all. Yeah, the favelas is a very fascinating situation where you've got this group of people above the people that have money. And the, the people that are in these places with this incredible view are the people that are really poor. I mean, it's the opposite of how it is in California. Yeah. The Hollywood Hills are where all the rich folks live, and down on the, the bottom is where the, the regular folks live. The people that can afford to live in the hills, they get that incredible view. The people that are down on the ground... Those are the people that, man, I'd love to live up in those hills. Yeah. But the favelas yeah. are the hills. It's really yeah. kind of crazy. Just wedged in, I mean, stacked boxes on top of one another yeah. with, with just a horrible standard of living. But, uh, yeah, it, it makes it really difficult when, when you look at our, our criminal justice system and, and, and some of those things you talked about. But one of the things that, that I look at, too, is where you get these career politicians that, you know, yeah, they've got experience balancing a budget, but they've got a staff that kind of looks at it. You know, my experience coming from the military then over to the private sector and seeing the accountability there. You know, if you're a CFO of a publicly traded company, you are scrutinized to the T on every expenditure. Right. What that's going to do to your stock price. These are men and women that are very, very capable of going into Washington, D.C. and leaning out some of the problems we have. They're very capable of doing that. But, of course, they don't want to give up all their, their freedoms. They don't want to get paid 170 k a year because they're making a heck of a lot more than that with this, this publicly traded company, too. But to go be a politician and have every little bit of their life scrutinized, like, hey, this lady back in high school did this. Mm-hmm. That deters a lot of these really brilliant people in the private sector from going and running for office where, you know, they may be a lot more capable than this career-long politician who got into office when they were 32 years old and, and has been you know, in public office since. Yeah, isn't it kind of a crazy situation we find ourselves in, especially today with social media and the internet and uh, the, the, the accountability that these people have about their private lives is the only people that we're going to get to run for office are people that no one can fucking relate to because they've never taken any chances. They've never done anything fucked up. They never had a fucking orgy. They've never done <laughs> coke. They've never done anything stupid. They never, you know, they, they, they just... Everything that they've done that was crazy or fun would automatically disqualify them for the job. But we we can't take into we can't in our minds rationalize the idea that people make mistakes and through those mistakes you build character and you become a better person. I'll tell you, you know, I run a company and you know the people that we bring into the company and the company helps veterans get jobs and they get out. One of my prerequisites is I don't want perfect people. On staff, not that that we're we don't discriminate against them by any means, but I like bringing people onto my team, specifically my leadership team, who have been down and out before, who have had to dig themselves back up and overcome adversity. Because when things go bad, they don't panic. You know how they're going to respond already because they've been through things in their life before where it's been very difficult. It's one of the values that we pitch to companies on hiring more veterans. Is look, you're going to hire these folks when there's a bad day at work, sales are down, or somebody didn't show up for work. They're not going to panic about it. That, that, that's, that's small to them. This is minor. Um, 
That's a very good point. It's, you know, those are the people that I want on my team. Same thing in political office. I mean, you get all these perfect people, then you throw them into D.C. where then they start having orgies. That's when they start going a little crazy. <laughs> they've been waiting. Yeah, and, you know, they've been contained for so long, and you get the Anthony Wieners up there. Well, this fucking shit that's going on with Clinton, you know, this this thing that this guy who uh, had an island and essentially had these underage sex slaves. Do you know about this whole thing? No, I didn't Clinton hear about visited this island. Oh, fucking Christ. Google that, Jamie. Bill? Yes, yes. I, I got in a ton of heat in social media because I said uh, yesterday, you know, the John Jones thing comes out, and I don't want to get too far off subject, but I said, you know, they asked, you know, will he ever be able to overcome this? I said, look, in, in a country where Bill Clinton can do what he did and then become one of the highest paid public speakers and the hero of his political party, yes, John Jones can be forgiven for, for snorting cocaine. Yeah, he's a 27-year-old kid. Well, people went nuts, and on social media it was all, Stan compares John Jones to Bill Clinton. <laughs> Well, you did, but it's correct. It's a good comparison. It's the scenario. But yeah. look at this, man. This this is really fucking crazy. This, um, especially if Hillary is running for president right now, which apparently looks like it's going to be Hillary versus Jeb Bush. This guy, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, was accused of luring underage girls to his. He had some 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 retreat somewhere, and Clinton went there several times. So <laughs> it's just fucked. Bill it's I mean, he's a fucking wild man. Bill Clinton was a goddamn wild man. It, we know that for a fact. I, you know, I don't want to divulge his name, but I spent time with a guy who's worth two billion dollars. <laughs> he's he's one of the most successful CEOs uh, in the country, and and he told me a story where he hung out with Bill Clinton one time when he was president, and and you know they're at some they're at some establishment, and Bill says, hey. We should buy those girls down there shots. And and the guy, the gentleman I know goes, you know, Mr. President, I don't think that's a good idea. If you want to do that, let me order them and send them down. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And he said that his personal security, his Secret Service members used to call Bill Clinton. He used to call him Elvis. That was their code name for him was Elvis. Wow. Yeah. He was a wild motherfucker. Look, he had that sickness. <laughs> he had it. He had it full blown. And, and people, I mean, his IQ yeah. is supposedly off the charts. I Must mean, he's be. one of the brightest yeah. guys. Yeah. That's why he likes pussy so much. He knows. Mike Tyson said it best. He said, if God made something better than pussy, he kept it to himself. You know, I, I've got a <laughs> phrase that I use to all, all married men. Um, you know, I, I tell them all the time. I said, listen, you know, and I tell it to a lot of fighters when they're married as well because they travel. There's going to be a lot of temptation. I said, look. Pussy is undefeated. It's never lost. <laughs> it's never lost. If you go head to head with it, you are going to lose and you need to avoid those situations. You need to avoid those situations. And, and you know, I've got certain protocols. If I go out to call a fight, you know, and, and hey, if, 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 um, if I'm going to go out and it's Vegas, like last weekend, you know, I'm not going to go out and have more than two drinks out in public in an environment where I am not with my wife. And then once the second drink is up, I'm going back to her. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to put myself in that situation you know, when you got a Ferrari at home, you don't go out test driving Cadillacs. You know what I mean? And so Cadillac makes a good car these days. <laughs> CTSV, you ever drive one? Goddamn hell of an automobile. Probably more reliable than You're you're ruining than a your ru <laughs> I know what you're saying. I'm just standing you up for Cadillacs. I'm a <laughs> car guy. Sorry. Sorry, I like Cadillac. What you're saying. Cat look, Ferraris will fucking break down on the highway. That's there what I'm saying. There you go. There you go. But either way, don't take overheat. it on. Don't take it on head to head. Don't go head to head with it. You will lose. It's never lost. Yes, I like what you're saying up to that point, up to the Cadillac Ferrari thing. Completely but no, derailed I the comparison. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're you're fighting fucking thousands of years of DNA, essentially. You're fighting all the DNA that existed that kept human beings alive when 50% of the babies would die, when most people never lived to be past 30. I mean, it's, you're fighting that. I mean, the urge that men have to, to, to procreate, that is, that's the reason why there's people. Yep. Into, if we were lazy about procreating, about having sex, if having sex was, ah, eh, it was all right, nobody would have fucking no. kids. No, none of I mean, you have children and I have children. You would never know what a great experience it is to be a father, how fantastic it is, how enriching it is. If you just looked at it from watching some guy and his wife with the kids crying at the movie theater or someone at the airport, you're like, fuck that. I'm, <laughs> I'm young. I'm single. I like, I like waking up when I want yep. without someone yelling at me, without some fucking kid that I have to clean their diaper. But then you have kids. You understand like, oh, this isn't somebody else's kid. This is my kid. This is a part of me. This yeah. is love that's indescribable. And then it becomes this sort of new level of your life that- it's very difficult to explain to someone who doesn't have children. Yeah. I have a lot of single friends. I have a lot of comics that are my friends that, you know, that don't have kids and they go all fucking willy-nilly crazy slinging dick all over the world. They're fucking wild men. And I I try to they're like, "Man, I uh, you know, I would hate to have kids." I'm like, "Yeah, you say that." They but- have no idea. Yeah, it's the me- to me it's the meaning of life. I I couldn't imagine. You know, I had my first daughter and it wasn't that long after I'd gotten back from Iraq the second time. And it was such a powerful, one of the most powerful experience of my life. You go from an environment where you see so much life taken. Mm. And then I'm sitting in a room and, and I see, you know, life given. And, you know, for me at that time, I was already thinking about getting out of the military. And there was a lot of guilt inside of me for doing that because I was so... I was so good at being a Marine officer. I loved leading Marines. You know, I didn't love going to but I loved leading Marines. And you feel guilty because you know these guys are going to keep going back and what you should do. Um, but when my first daughter was born, it, it was just an absolutely life-changing experience. I mean, for me, the rest of this is, is a puppet show. I mean, you, you, we do all these things so we can get home to where we want to be. I can get on my, my living room floor and just be with my three daughters. And, and they bring out the best side of me. They inspire me. They're by far my best accomplishment. I mean, I absolutely live for them. And, you know, you, you can relate. You know, when you sit down and you lay next to a girl that, that you may have just had, you know, uh, random relations with, that's nothing like laying down next to your child as they fall asleep and they lean over and just tell you, I love you, Daddy. It's very different. But if the chick's really hot, it's still awesome. <laughs> I'm just saying. If you're not married and the chick's really hot, it's pretty goddamn good. <laughs> Especially whatever. But, yeah, there's just a different level. Like, you know, I visited my daughter at school today, and she didn't know we were going to be there. Um, and uh, she turns around and sees me. You know, she's six. And her eyes light up, and she runs over and gives me a hug. And there's a warmth that comes over you that no one will ever understand unless you have a kid. You just won't. You know, and I'm not saying that it's a better life, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a better person. I'm not saying that everybody has to go out and have a kid because I hate those arguments. And I yeah. used to hate those arguments when I was single. People would say, like, yeah, you're not fucking, you're not mature until you have a kid. You know, I, I believe there's a lot of people that don't need to have kids. I believe there's a lot of people that they can contribute to this society, to this culture, to this world without ever procreating. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, though, I'm such a selfish person. I'm so, I shouldn't even say self, I'm so self obsessed with my my own goals and my, I'm always in my head I'm always concentrating on my thoughts and my emotions that having a child made me rewire it rewired all of my thinking 
because everything I do now, I think about my children. I think about them as little human beings that I'm responsible for. Little human beings that I, you know, I can't do anything too crazy. I can't do anything that's going to risk my life. I'm, I have to take care of them. I mean, yeah. it's just, there's a thing about that. I never used to think or worry about, I mean, I, I certainly didn't want to die before, but I never used to think about it the way I think about it now. Because now I think about leaving behind my children, and that's a horrific idea. It's powerful. You, know, you, you couldn't say it any better. I mean, it was at the time I had my first daughter, I had zero fears. I mean, I took a lot of risks um, in, in my job at that time and did not care. Then all of a sudden you have this child and this fear is introduced to your world. Not just about you dying, leaving behind, but... What about the child? You know, yeah. they're going to drive one day. They're going to get their heart broken one day. Or, or what happens here? You know, I had a I had a friend of mine who lives right up the block, and he his firstborn son, eleven years old, they're on a ski trip in Colorado, and someone was towing a paraplegic down the slope, and the the wire they were using to tow him hit his son in the neck and killed him instantly. Oh God! I mean, it was and to to to, to be there for him. And not that I was able to do much, but to, to see him have to recover from that is, you know, look, I've been on the battlefield and, and I've seen a lot of a lot of things I would never wish on anybody. Um, but losing your own child is, is just brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, it's it's it must be indescribable. What you know, Jeremy Stevens brought this up when he was on the podcast about fighters having daughters, all daughters. You've got all daughters. John Jones has all daughters. Mark Coleman has our da all daughters. I mean, this is like a long list. Alpha males. Of, of these savages that only have daughters. Is that the, the universe trying to balance itself out? You know, I don't know. What is that? There's something with it. With You know, your natural testosterone count is so high. I don't know. There, there, there's... I've, I've read different articles about it. I remember before I had my third, Chris Weidman was trying to give me some tips. Oh, you got to eat this. Then you got to do it just like that. I mean, he, he gave me the play-by-play, -play and he says that's how he had his boy. You know, that, that's exactly how he did it, and he followed the step scenario. Of course, I wasn't patient enough to put in the amount of time he did. And I don't believe it. Yeah. I, I just dumb luck. I think it's, you know, the fucking zigzag. You know, the the right fucking sperm gets to the right egg, but bam, Jed's a millionaire. I don't yeah. think there's any logic or science to it. It's a bunch of old wives' tales. Yeah. I mean, I go home and I am surrounded by estrogen. Me too. Surrounded. It's in, it's an incredible, it's it's a weakness. It's Yeah, get, they get you. Oh. Yeah. I, I got a bit I'm doing about it in my act right now. It's just because it's so, like, when you're around a bunch of people who think completely different than you, you really understand like the, the the troubles that men and women have tried, you know, the, the, this this thing where we're trying to figure out how to get along together. <laughs> you 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 really understand it at a base level. When yeah. You go, oh, this is like, this is like a totally different animal. This is like a kangaroo trying to live with an orangutan. Like you guys are fucking. They're so different. <laughs> they're so different. And then you have these weird traitors that sort of like cross the barrier and try to meet in the middle and like men are all assholes i'm different and they try to like sell themselves oh, as yeah, some yeah. alternative to men but meanwhile they are men and, and then your wives are using it as an example in exactly. an argument with you that that oh some gosh. fucking creep and then they always get caught doing something fucking gross <laughs> they always get caught raping somebody or something like oh yeah there you go you yeah know, like bill cosby perfect example Bill Cosby forever was telling comedians, "Don't tell dirty jokes. You should never tell dirty jokes." He's crushing Eddie Murphy yeah. for it. He was oh, and not just Eddie Murphy. He did it to Chris Rock. He did it to uh, a, a host of especially black comedians. Meanwhile, 
if the stories are true, if 30 women aren't yeah. liars, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's getting a little ridiculous. Wow. But that's it's exactly what you find out. I mean, yeah. Ted Haggard, that fucking that preacher who was uh, always like uh, railing against gay people and against, you know, God says that gay men should not be married. It's an abomination. Meanwhile, he's doing meth and fucking getting gay hookers. It's all the same shit. It's like yep. these these fucking traitors that cross this 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 line where they're trying to portray themselves as the alternative to, to, to reality. They believe they're the enlightened one. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking gross. It's a scam. It's disgusting. Male feminist. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> you hear me out there, you creeps. <laughs> you need to do deadlifts, all of you. It, it, it's <laughs> funny because there's been a couple times where I've started to get pretty pretty serious on the podcast here, and then Joe, compl- like when I talked about the Ferrari and the cat, he completely turns it's it. It's important. You know, it, or, or, you know, hey, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> He's laying next to my daughter instead of like, you know, another woman. He throws that one in there. It reminds me. I did the Howard Stern show once. And this is back in 2000. I was an active duty Marine Corps captain. Was that when you were in the WC? Yeah. Were you a light heavyweight champion? Yeah. And so the Versus Network, God rest their souls, rest in peace, they somehow get me on the Howard Stern show. And I go, well, what am I going on for? And I'm worried. As an active duty captain in the Marine Corps, I can get in a lot of trouble for saying the wrong thing here. Right, right. And so they tell me, oh, don't worry. You're just there to present a check from the WC. But if he will start asking you questions, try to stay on as long as you can. Okay, cool. What's the contest? The hottest chick with the ugliest scar. Oh, God. I mean, it, the ugliest scar? <laughs> and so, what uh, the fuck? But, it, you know, at one point, you know, I think there's actually still, you, I think the video is still somewhere. But uh, we're doing this interview, and, and Howard was being very serious. And he was asking me what it's like for these young men and women that deploy and how difficult it is. And, and I'm getting into it. And, and I could see his wheels turning like he's getting sympathetic, and everybody in there is really serious. And this isn't his brand. So he thinks on his feet and he's nimble. And right out of nowhere, he comes, wow, that is so And how old are you? 25 years. The pressure. You guys, you must be jerking off, what, seven, eight times a day? Where do you do it? <laughs> and here I am. I mean, I, I knew, you know, I, got, I was warned, you know, hey, look, this guy's going right. to throw a curveball or two at you, you know? I wasn't ready for that. I forget how I tiptoed and tap danced around it. But, I mean, it, was, uh, it wasn't easy. Wasn't easy. Yeah, there's no, there's no easy way to tiptoe around that. No, no, and, yeah. and you know, there's Marines out there just waiting. To, oh, hey, did you hear that damn captain on there talking about jerking off on the Howard Stern show? Yeah, isn't that weird? You can't admit to jerking off. That's a very strange thing. It's like uh, I don't understand that world. I'll it's never like, understand well, a world where someone gets angry at you for talking about jerking off. Well, it's like women and shitting. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Some chicks will get down. They'll tell you. <laughs> you know, they'll let you know. I appreciate that. You know, a guy who can't. You know, I had a friend. He uh, he was over this girl's house. They're about to get busy. He went to use the bathroom. She would forgot to flush, and there was a floater in there. And he said it killed his boner, and he said he left. <laughs> and I go, was she hot? He goes, she was really hot. I go, you're a fucking pussy. I go, you flush it. You yeah. man up. You erase your memory. <laughs> Shake it up a little give bit. Give yourself the fucking Vulcan neck pinch. <laughs> There's <laughs> no way he was an alpha male. He had to be a Bravo. I don't know what he was. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he's a good guy. He'll definitely have boys. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just don't understand that. I just think, you know, there's a reality to this world. Food comes in, shit comes out. Yeah, Deal with it. It's pretty simple. You know, if you can't, you, you know, you're going to miss out on some <laughs> opportunities if you can't close those doors of perception. It, it, it's it's amazing how funny that stuff is to kids, by the way, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
You say poop in my house, and you'd swear. Oh, I was, yeah. You'd say I was your level of comedian. Dude, my kids love to say poop. My kids will. I'll read stories, and as I'm reading stories, like they get. To, you know, like there's a lot of times there's like pauses in like the story when you try to read the story right, and they're like, and he pooped his pants. <laughs> ah! You know, you got a six year old and a four year old. Yep. They think it's fucking awesome. Anytime you can say poop. Is that how old your girls are? Yeah. That's I've got I've got seven, five, and one and a half. Oh, they're so cute. It makes you really understand and appreciate, really understand and appreciate the differences between men and women on a, a like a base level. Having a baby grow up to be a little girl and you go and, and also see the variations between yeah. the two of them. You know, and when I say like that I, I get angry at male feminism, I don't mean that I'm I don't think that everyone should have equal rights, because that's not what I mean at all. I just think there's a lot of pussies out there that are passing themselves off as a better alternative to a masculine man, and that masculinity, for whatever reason, is under attack. It's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, it's it's toxic, wrong for you to be strong. Toxic yeah. masculinity. I've heard this expression many times. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, there's nothing wrong with women being feminine either. And that's the other thing about women being feminine, is that somehow or another, a lot of these women who are, like, pro-equal rights will get upset if a girl wants to dress sexy, if a girl wants to wear what's considered by our society to be sexually attractive, high heels, short mm -hmm. skirts, that this is playing into men's hands. Now, guess what? Some women like it. They like dressing like Absolutely. that. There's, there's nothing wrong with a guy who wants to dress like that either. Who gives a fuck? Like this live and let live... For whatever reason, it, on, it only works for some people if it suits their purpose or their ideology. As soon as it doesn't, any guy that likes to compete in an aggressive sport must be a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. That's not true. I know it's not true. Mm -hmm. I've experienced it. I know a lot of guys that are really nice people that also like to fight. Absolutely. No, and, Plenty of them. And this, this idea that that's incomprehensible, that the, these, these things are mutually exclusive... I reject that. I think it's I think it's preposterous and I think that idea is perpetrated by people who are trying to present this alternative to the norm that they they know they can't compete as men and so they want to pretend that somehow or another all the things that we associate with men muscle cars, sports, you know, whatever, having a big dick. All those things are terrible. And yeah. that what what they are this this guy who cries every time he sees a fucking a, a commercial in it with a puppy, that that's that's the better choice. And you're and you're wrong for being the other way. You know, it's it's envy and insecurity can 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 make any one of us I mean really ugly. And and you hear it, you know, the, the green envy makes you ugly and everything else, but I think I think a lot of that is what it is creates that intolerance, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're white, you were in the Marine Corps, so, oh, you must be, you know, fully against all this, you know, homosexual stuff and the marriage. I don't give a shit. Don't care at all. With as much, as much hate as I've seen in the world, what do I care about two people who love each other? Yeah. I have no issues whatsoever with that. Whatsoever. Yeah, my issue is with people that have a problem with it. I have a real issue yeah. with people that have a problem with people who just love each other. I don't know what it's like to want to love a man. I don't. I can't believe my wife loves me. I can't believe any women love men. Why would you want dick? I don't get it. To me, it's like having dick is like having a magic trick. Like, like I can't believe this works. 
Like, I can't pull a rabbit out of my hat. I can't believe you want to see this. Like, I don't understand it. But the, the idea that somehow or another it's evil that a man wants it, but it's not evil that a woman wants it, it's fucking preposterous. Who gives a shit? It, it's ridiculous. I don't care if men wear high heels. I don't care if women dress like a fucking biker. I don't give a fuck. As long as you're nice. I mean, I've, I have had friends and relations with some of the weirdest fucking people across the full spectrum of humanity, and all I care about is, are you nice? Are you interesting to talk to? Are you intelligent? Can I, can I enjoy my time with yep. you without feeling like you're judging me or you're being aggressive towards me or passive aggressive towards me? And I mean, I've had some of the weirdest, most uh, aggressive conversations with people that are supposedly progressive, you know, that decide before they even get to talk to me that I'm the enemy. You know, because I got tattoos or I lift weights or I, you know, mm -hmm. compete in martial arts or, you know, whatever the fuck it is that they decided was what would put me into this enemy bracket. Yeah. But those this, the, these these insecurities that we have, like the live and let live ideal is, is, is one of the best ways to live your life. Just live and let live. Don't create any enemies that aren't really your enemy. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we, we make it harder on ourselves. You know, when you look at that, I mean, the live and let live means, hey, look, be, be concerned with your circle and be tolerant of all those around and try to understand, right? Which we all, we all make mistakes. Certainly I do. Um, we make it harder because then you look at all these, these new things that we have that really bolster insecurity. Like if you look at Twitter, for example, Twitter is this universe full of all of us that are really, really insecure looking for other people's approval. You know, how can I think of the next statement that's going to get as many favorites, likes, retweets, oh, and get yeah. me and get other people to to then you know befriend me, so I have so many f and follow me. And I mean, it's it's everybody's trying to one up each other, and it's this environment where we go out there looking to make. I mean, how many times we get sniped for everything mm -hmm. you say? I mean, I can't call a fight card without. I mean, look, <laughs> we're talking for seven and a half hours. Seven and a half yeah. hours is how long we're talking. It's impossible. I challenge you to find somebody who's going to talk for seven and a half hours and not piss you off at least once. Not only that, you're calling a live fight well, where shit is going down on the spot, and sometimes you're incorrect. Yeah. There's, just not, there's no way around it. You're talking about two guys throwing fucking bones at each other in a cage. I mean, they're slinging at each yeah. other and you make mistakes and you 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 don't see a choke you you miss a position you know you 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 it's going to happen but there's so many people out there that are just looking to point a finger and that's where Goldie gets in trouble. Oh, yeah, Goldberg yeah. fucking engages with these people. I had to pull him aside oh. after the NFL thing. I go, dude, I fucking told you about this before. You can't argue with these people. Why are you arguing? You don't even know them. Yeah. Who, who knows who, who they are? Who knows what they're doing? Some of them, they don't even have an avatar. It's an egg. Yeah. And even if it is an avatar, who the fuck are you? Cowards, how do you know if it's cowards. that them? It, it could be anybody. They could have taken a picture out of a fucking magazine. Taking a, a, a camera photo of that picture, use that as an avatar. You're a fat fuck. You don't even know them. Yeah. You don't even know what they look yeah. like. You have no idea. You're and arguing with fucking ghosts. <laughs> well, and the, and the thing is, too, that people is, is, is the people that will engage like he does in a lot of instances, they tend to be very passionate and care a lot about what they do. So it's yeah. easy to lure them in there. So <laughs> while you're trying to destroy them yeah. and you're trying to break them down, at least understand and acknowledge the fact that they really do care about their job and the product they're putting out there. They're, they're trying to be good. 
Um, and, and obviously, maybe they made some mistakes, and you were able to lure them in, into to saying things they didn't mean. But there are guys out there, you know, I don't want to name any names, but there are guys out there that do commentary for MMA that should not be doing it. And I, I can't listen. There's guys that I can't listen to that I, ha- I literally have to turn the fucking volume down in other organizations because they, they just drive me crazy. They, oh. they don't know what the fuck they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. And I get crazy. So I understand it. And if you think I'm one of those guys, I get it. I think you're wrong. But I, I yeah. get it. I understand. But I, I think this, this ability to reach people and to express your opinion, it's way more valuable than it's negative. Yes. W- I, I get a lot out of I get a lot of the underground. I get a lot out of criticism. And sometimes they're right. I mean, I'm not perfect. Oh, absolutely. I, I fuck up calls sometimes or I'll, you know, miss things or, you know, one of the things that people need to consider, you don't need to consider, but when you're watching fights, you're watching in the octagon. When we're watching, there's oftentimes like, I think a punch landed, but really a guy tripped, and it's because the guy's back is to me, and you can't tell. If someone's standing and your back's to you, and someone throws a punch, and you see the guy fall backwards, you think the guy got hurt, and then the people that are watching at home have the benefit of watching it from the side, yep. and they're seeing a punch not land. All that kind of stuff happens. And you, you, you could watch the monitors, I guess, and sometimes I do, but man, I want to watch it live. I don't want to watch those fucking monitors. It's I, so much I, better to watch live you know, as a fan. And, you yeah. know, I tried to stick to the monitors because I remember the first card I called was in Rio when Phil Davis fought Leota Machida. And Machida mm-hmm. threw a whole bunch of his blitzes going away from me mm-hmm. and into Phil Davis, and it looked like they all landed. Right. When I watched some of the replays, not all of them landed. So it was, it was one of those difficult things where with the monitor, I think I can, I can see more. Um, but there's times when they're close to me, I, I can't help it. I want to look through the cage because I need to get enwrapped into that fight and feel the crowd, feel them. Because, look, it's, it's our job to, to be provocative, to break things down, to make it entertaining. And all while we're trying to do that, there's also a voice in our ear, multiple voices in our ear, telling us all kinds of wild, hey, look, I got the replay. It mm-hmm. was a headbutt. You know? So there's, there's, things, there's lots of things going on during that seven-hour period. Um, that that can also lead to a distraction or lead to to a misstep. Those those voices in your ear are brutal when you're in the middle of talking. Oh, when especially if the, it's like a big point you're trying yes, to make, and then someone's like, "We we got a replay on, on you know, look at your monitor, look at the B monitor, like oh," and you you hear someone talking in your ear while you're talking, and you know that a fucking million and a half people are here plus are hearing you, and then who knows how many fucking people are going to hear over the course of time? Yes, like they're going to listen to that that broadcast. I watched that Phil Davis Leota Machida fight the other day. It was way closer than I thought it was, and uh, I could see Phil winning. I mean, Phil did get takedowns and did do damage on the ground. And like you were saying, like a lot of those shots that Machida it was a very, very, very yeah. close fight. But a lot of people were calling it one of the greatest robberies ever. But man, I watched it again. I was like, ooh, I don't think not so much. Yeah. I don't think it's one of the greatest robberies. It's no, a very fucking close fight. And even Machida will tell you, and you know, when I talked to him before his fight uh, with CB Dalloway. You know, he's had to adapt his style a little bit because he had a whole bunch of really contested decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, his Rampage Jackson fight, his fight with Phil Davis. He was leaving a lot of fights where he felt like, okay, look, I was in total control, but he didn't, he, you know, he made it confusing for the judges. And when you do that, look, judges are human too. We've talked all tonight about how flawed we are as humans, how we all make mistakes. And and that happens there. That yes. absolutely. See, you've got to do the things. He's had to get more aggressive. He can't just counterpunch. He's had to get a little bit more offensive with his style to ensure that he's going to get those decisions. Because 
if he doesn't get them, he can't be totally disappointed when he's got a little bit of a passive style. Yeah, I'm glad he went down to 185. I think he should have been oh. there all along. Yeah, but Cheetah's one of those guys who would weigh in at 203, 204. Didn't cut any weight. No. It's crazy. It's and he's crazy. not a huge he's not a huge middleweight. I mean, he no. walks, he'll be, you know, 197, 196. When I fought at middleweight, I would show up to the venue at 207 on Tuesday, make wow. 185 Friday, fight back at 207 on Saturday. That's crazy. And I was big then. Now I look at these dudes now. I mean, they're almost all like that anymore. Well, look at Weidman. Weidman's Huge. enormous. He's a big fucking guy. He walks guy. at 225, 230. Yeah. He's a big, thick guy, and he's strong as shit. And that's one of the things I think Machida realized in that fight. Like, wow, I'm not a big middleweight. No. You know, when you fight in Weidman, you unload everything but the kitchen sink, and then he waves you in afterwards. I mean, he unloaded on Weidman, and Weidman was still there. And the fact that, we- I mean, who thought round one, Weidman gets right in Machida's face and starts outstriking? First three rounds, he outstruck Machida. Now, it's not a pure kickboxing match. The threat of the takedown certainly opens up your arsenal more and limits Leotos. Hmm. But it was still, we've never seen someone go in there and take that route towards beating Machida. Well, he's very confident in his chin and his knockout power. And he also has a really good sense of distance. Yeah. That's one thing that people don't give him enough credit. They think he's just this face-forward attacking guy. No, he moves in and then he moves back and he moves in and he moves back. He's throwing feints a lot. And Ray yeah. Longo is such a good fucking striking oh. coach. Especially with wrestlers, you know that he really understands how to how to teach those guys how to how to fight with the constant threat of the takedown and then attack off of those off of those opportunities. You talk about controlling distance. I mean, when someone knocks you out with a counter elbow, yeah. How often? I mean, that is really hard to do yeah. to time an elbow on a counter strike and knock somebody out. I mean, that's understanding the range of your opponent, how far they're coming, a feel. It's a feel that not every fighter has, and Chris definitely hasn't. Yeah, Longo. Longo is also one of those guys technically, but he also, I think he makes his fighters feel like they're better than they should be. Like, he makes them feel like they're ready to run through that brick wall because he's just that tough, northeast, gritty dude. Like, hey, Ray, how do you think he's going to do against Weidman? And and he told me two days before the fight, oh, he's... Brian, he's going to smoke him. This will be, he's going to run right through him. It's its so funny to hear his confidence and how tough yeah. he is. Well, he told me, um, it was one of Weidman's earlier victories. Um, I think uh, I think after he fought Tom Lawler, um, he, he I, I was in the, the cage with him, and Ray Long goes, he's a motherfucker. I'm telling you, this kid's a motherfucker. <laughs> and he, another thing he said to me about Weidman, he goes, we're all lucky he's fighting. Trust me. We're all lucky he's in the fucking cage fighting. Because if he was out there, if he didn't have an outlet, oh, Christ. No shit. Because I've seen some shit with this kid in the gym. That'd be a great Reebok. Be a great Reebok t-shirt for Weidman. We're all lucky he's he's fighting. That or he's a motherfucker. (laughs) When you look at him, too, he's so handsome and looks so nice. He's a respectable-looking young man to be such a fucking murderer in there. He did the the, the desk show with us one time. He's got his wife, his kids up there. and It's like you said. Just because someone's a fighter doesn't mean that they're this aggressive, atrocious human being. I mean, exactly. Frankie Edgar is one of the, the greatest. The nicest guys ever. And probably the, the pound for pound, or it, forget weight, toughest guy in the UFC. He's a savage. Yeah. I mean, gritty, like the, the, the heart that that guy has and the pace that he puts on you. I mean, he go. I think that guy, pace for pace, is like there's, there's almost no one who could beat that. No. 
There's almost no one who has a work ethic like him. And pain doesn't register the same with him, you know, and, and he's totally sane. We've had some fighters now that I don't think pain registered with, but right. I don't think they were all there. You know, Frankie's a guy that when he feels it hurt, his heart's burning, his lungs burning, he just he just tells himself to go forward. He just keeps going. And the other thing, I, you know, when you see him out in public, none of it's gone to – I mean, he's still the same kid that'll go eat like a bowl of pasta down at the local, mm-hmm. you know, the, the corner store with everybody. And that's – I mean, his whole community just loves that guy. Yeah, well, he's a great guy. He is. He is. He's, he's, he's a, he's a perfect example of what you were saying. Like you think of a cage fighter, especially a champion – a championship level UFC fighter and this f- nicest fucking guy you ever want to meet. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those in this sport. There's a lot of those guys in this sport that defy the stereotypes. And that's one of the things that I love about this sport. And the, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that so many fighters, they develop this understanding of who they really are in the gym. This, you can't have. You can have an unchecked ego and be a basketball player. You know, you could really think oh, you're yeah. the fucking greatest thing since sliced bread. You're slam dunking people because you're not getting strangled every day. You're not getting guys where they run a fresh guy in every five minutes and they're all murderers and they're all just on, on top of you, smothering you, kneeing you in the dick. You know, you're not, you're not yeah. getting that. You, and that humility that you get from training and t- tapping and losing and, and getting it all beaten out of you. Also, the aggression that you experience bend in the gym to just blow it all out of your system you don't have any need to get in fights outside and you know what i've noticed too it for me at least personally it helped me a lot when you go through those really hard workouts you get almost this when it's over you get this moment of almost euphoria where you gain perspective and and for me you know MMA fighting helped me with a lot of demons that I carried over that I never had issues with in my in my personal life, you know, because I had fighting as my outlet. And you know, you would finish these workouts or you'd finish a fight and have the high of winning a fight, and it would give you this perspective on your life. And all of a sudden, you have more of this this clear thought process to make decisions and not rush decisions or see things a little bit more clearly and not get angry about X, Y, or Z. Because all of a sudden now you're seeing them a little differently, and you get that when you're when you're exhausted. Yeah, yeah. When you you've expended all your biological need for aggression, which men you have testosterone you have a dick it works i mean this is a reason why people go to war all this stuff is a part of our genetics it's a part of our dna and to expend it to just get it all out of your system creates this balance yes and that that balance doesn't exist in a lot of people there's a lot of people out there that have this unaddressed aggression inside of them that's why you see people that would never get into a fight fuck you they're in their car they're fucking fingering people and laying on a horn screaming it's like this is their release like they don't have a real release and so since we're not living in a world we have to worry about barbarians running over the hill with broadswords every couple of weeks and you're not fighting off jaguars that are trying to kill your babies and eat them. You, 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 we go through this life with all these genetic needs that are never met. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in many ways, it, it's just the downfall of our culture that I've always said, if you want to get rid of bullying, teach people how to fight. And a lot of people think that that's like, that's counterintuitive. That's ridiculous. Like you're going to make bullies that know how to fight better. The stronger bullies are going to merge. They're going to kick everybody's ass. I, I bet not. I bet not. I bet what you're going to do is you're going to get people that have a greater understanding of where this aggression is coming from, where their bullying is coming. They'll understand this is a lot of it is insecurity. Yes, exactly. Confidence is the number one deterrent for bullies. If bully bullies don't bully confident kids, they just don't. If if there's a possible threat that that kid may hit you back or or may actually beat you, they're not going to bully you. 
And so I would talk to parents, you know, when I would teach kids um, all the time that, look, you know, learning to defend yourself is a life skill. Yeah, It's a life skill to learn how to do that. And it gives you, it bleeds into other areas. You know, yeah. if you can push yourselves and get comfortable in these really uncomfortable situations, it's going to help you when you have to go and maybe speak in front of the class. You know, the first time you grapple against somebody with all that pride, I mean, you get, kids get nervous. I mean, I would train, I would train Marines. And the first time I would make them grapple, I had, I had one that threw up right after. <laughs> There's so much pride. They were afraid. I got yeah. tapped out from all my other classmates and it's such an alpha male, you know, play and, and they got so nervous. A couple weeks later, I mean, they're all in, and, and they're yeah. comfortable in that environment. Maybe now public speaking comes more, you know, more naturally. I mean, they, they get that fear, and they get over it. That bleeds into other areas of your life. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, I've seen people in class for the first time hyperventilating. Oh. Like, guys have done all sorts of sports, but someone mounts them, and all of a sudden you see them like, they can't fucking breathe. And you're like, calm down, dude. Think of this as a game. You're playing pool yeah. here. You're playing basketball. It's a game. It's just it's a game of arm bars and chokes. You, you know, you mess around with some of these pro football players. You know, I've, I've spent some time with Glazer, who trains a lot of those NFL guys. You mess around with them, and you start dominating them, and they, they start to panic. Yeah. Their egos are so big. Yeah. And they're so, you, wait a minute, why is this smaller guy than me doing to me what he's doing? And they, they begin to panic and hyperventilate, just like you said. <laughs> well, it's also football players, they never really go, I mean, they kind of go one-on-one, but for these brief moments, and then whistles are blown, and flags are raised. Five and, seconds. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't yeah. have to have that dig down deep Frankie Edgar type heart. And very few of them do. That's why it's so rare when you see a guy like Herschel Walker subjects himself to that shit in his late 40s. I know. What a fucking stud that guy is. He's the scariest guy of all time. 48 years old, smashing people in strike force. And you just go, what? I mean, he probably would be like John Jones if he started into his, oh. you know, in his young days. I mean, the athleticism he had. And look Ugh. at his physique at that age. He just does push ups and sit ups. I don't believe him. I really don't. Because he says a lot of shit that's just not scientifically possible. Yeah. <laughs> like he says he only eats a, a salad and a one, bowl yeah, of soup. Yeah, one meal a day. That's the impossible. Fuck out of here. The fuck You'd out be of here. so skinny. Well, and I don't think he's lying. This is what I think. He he has trauma-induced um, issues that he's had from football where he has multiple personality disorder. I mean, he's spoken openly about this. Okay. That he has more than one person inside of his head. And I know... He's he's dealt with this in a variety of different ways. Therapy. I I don't know if he's on medication. I don't know what the deal is. But if you have multiple personalities and they're all living inside of your head, you might have one guy who just eats soup. You know, but <laughs> fuck. There's another guy doing deadlifts and eating fucking steak. Okay, You're right. that guy just doesn't talk to you. There's <laughs> a guy you don't. I mean, I just don't. I mean, I think for sure he definitely did a lot of his exercises just doing chin ups and push-ups and look if you do enough of them you can get pretty fucking swole yeah there's a lot of guys who calisthenics build them a great body but you were getting all set i'm waiting on this really serious scientific response <laughs> there may be one dude who eats soup inside yeah i think that's what it is i think yeah I mean, but it's, it's kind of crazy that he went into mma after this trauma induced multiple personality disorder and and i don't mean and not necessarily trauma physically but i think there's a lot of emotional trauma and mental trauma as well but then again also a lifelong career of getting hit in the head yeah i mean the collisions that that guy was a part of are on record you oh. can watch them and nobody rides for free they're all just fucking crashing None. into each other super athletes sprinting full blast and fucking elbows and head to head collisions and back before there was this concussion protocol by the yeah. way where guys get them now and they're out for weeks 
weeks. You're back the next play back then. What do you think is the number of times where a person can be knocked out before the athletic commission steps in and says, hey, this is enough? Three. Three. I, I, Three I think, yeah, in my, in my opinion, I think that the athletic commissions need to have a limit to where once you, if you get knocked out three times, then you, I think you should have to go in front of a board to get your license, in my opinion. And, and I'm sure that, you know, I haven't fully thought through this to cover all, so before people start bashing me for it. But, look, and you can defend yourself. Hey, look, you know, I've got three, but in this one, I'm not out. The ref stops this. Right. This, I was exhausted. You could visibly, and, and then you have, you know, a panel, the organization's involved to make a decision on whether you can be commissioned again. Do you think if this is the case, and if we're really going to be careful about this, do you think that fighters should be required to film training sessions so that we can review, so that we know exactly, like, if you're sparring, like, you like you know how many times a guy's been knocked out in the gym? Yeah, you know, it would be tough because they, I don't think they have the capital to put in the right kind of equipment. I don't think know? so either, but, I mean, if, if you can go $40,000 for a fucking blood test... Yeah, and they have 500 fighters that are possibly subject to this if they make it to. Uh, I mean, most guys are just going to get urine tested up until a certain point in their career. Yeah, but then they get to a certain point, and you're gonna you're gonna have to go through the full WADA testing. If that's the case, I mean, how much does it cost to put GoPros in gyms? I mean, how much does it cost? I mean, there's ones that we have now that are Wi-Fi enabled. They can all be linked up to right a to UFC. It database and the UFC could be monitoring or at least storing all of the footage of you know all these gyms and then make them sign contracts like saying look you have to let us know if you're you're sustaining a concussion in the gym like there's so, so many fights where you see guys get knocked out you go well that doesn't even look right oh, like yeah. why cuz you know that that guy got knocked out in the gym a bunch yep. of times like um uh Travis Luter versus who's the guy that Vitor fought Marvin Eastman you ever remember that fight? Yep. Marvin Eastman, the word was that he got knocked out not once but twice in camp leading up to that fight. Once by Tito Ortiz, he got hit with a knee or something, and once in, during a takedown he got knocked out again. Yep. So you're dealing with a guy who had like some <clears throat> serious trauma, and, and Travis catches him with a punch, which is a pretty decent punch, but he catches him on the end of it, and Marvin goes down like he got shot yep. by a sniper rifle. And the jiu-jitsu guy knocks out the striker out of nowhere. Travis could hit hard. Yeah. He was a tough guy, but it was just a weird KO. Yeah, same thing happened with Rashad Evans when he fought Leota Machida. Uh, his last sparring session, he got rocked bad. I mean, dropped, and he got hit in the same exact spot Machida would eventually knock him out of. By who? Oh, gosh, who the heck was it? I don't think it was Jardine. I'm forgetting who, but I'm, I mean... He could tell the story better than I. Well, I'd heard that Forrest Griffin leading up to the Anderson Silva fight was knocked out pretty badly, too. And uh, The way he used to spar, I'm not yeah. surprised. I used to, you know, I've sparred with him. Um, I sparred with him three, three days after I got back from my second tour in Iraq. I still had sand in my ears. And Scott, remember Scott Adams, the matchmaker mm -hmm. for the WC? Sure. He, he was like, hey, look, I need you to get you out here real quick. I need you to do a photo shoot. We're going to promote your fight. You're fighting in six weeks. I'm just all right. I'll go to Vegas and bring my wife, sightsee a little bit. Nope, we go straight to this gym, and I'm in a ring. I had to borrow all this gear. I have no mouthpiece. He's like, "Hey, I want you to spar this guy. You need to get, you know, you need to get back in the gym and get in shape." I have no idea who the guy is. I just know he's way bigger than me. Turns out it's Roy Nelson. And the coach goes, "We're gonna do five minute rounds, guys." I had never done five minutes before. I thought you only did that in fights. Like that's crazy. Nobody does five rounds. Roy's hitting me 
with these overhand rights, and dude, sand is still flying out of my ears. You know I mean, it was bad. It, it was literally survival mode. Two times he almost knocked me. I mean, I went, you know, like the Rocky Four up and over the ropes, and then they threw me back in. And then as soon as we finished there, oh, hey, no, no, that, that's morning sparring here. We're going to go to sparring over at Randy Couture's new gym. So I'd, I'd go down there, and it's Forrest Griffin. I've got no mouthpiece. And again, the coach said, hey, he's got no mouthpiece. Forrest, he's in the military. He's got free dental. Chips my teeth. I mean, but he used to get after it. I mean, spar as hard as humanly possible. Yeah, well, look at him now. He's yeah. all fucked up now because of it. He, he's, his shoulder is so bad he can't even brush his teeth, supposedly. Holy shit. Yeah, he's uh, apparently his right shoulder just like it's just not working. He just, yeah, I mean, he's he's lost a lot of mass when you look at him. You can yeah. tell that he's had a lot of atrophy in his body. I mean, that guy fought fucking hard and oh. trained hard. I mean, hard. Randy Couture always said nobody works harder than Forrest Griffin. Yeah. Yeah, but and it's not always work hard, right? It's work smart. Guys are getting so much smarter about that now. I mean, you look at like you know a guy like Anthony, who's been you know he's been injured frequently, but he's had to change his whole training regime. That he yes, yeah, so he gets yeah. himself there healthy. Cowboy Cerrone, for as crazy as he is, I think it was you know three fights ago, he got dinged a little bit in practice, so he just eliminated sparring and he just stopped doing it that entire camp. Really, and does a lot. He does a lot less now than people realize, and and everybody he spars with is someone hand selected mm-hmm. you know, that understands. And this is a wild man, but he knows. Look, I've things are changing. Coaches are finally starting to realize. Because back when I was fighting, I mean, none of these coaches actually fought in the octagon. Right. They they were playing jazz at that point. Nobody really knew the formula to mm-hmm. how to win in this. They they acted like it, but now they're finally starting to learn. And now we're starting to have guys like Ludwig who grew up doing it and now is switched to the other side and become a coach. We're seeing more guys like that as well that understand, you know what, you got to hold these guys back from themselves, pull mm-hmm. them back, train less, less rounds, deliver them healthy to the fight, and they'll be way more productive. Yeah, it's really going to be interesting to see what Duke Rufus does with CM Punk because Duke Rufus is essentially taking this guy. Once I read this article today where they're interviewing Duke, and he said, you know, I'm going to build this guy up from the, from the ground up, and he's not going to spar with anybody but me. He's like he's. Got, I'm gonna have him spar with me because I know that no one's gonna hurt him. I'm. I'm gonna have give. I'm gonna have total control, but I'm gonna correct all of his, his mistakes. And it's a great call to yeah. have a guy like Duke do that because he is a master striker and a master instructor. And I mean, you couldn't get a better coach for MMA for striking in MMA. I mean, I put him right up there with Dwayne and with Faraz Zahabi and you know all, all the Matt Hume, all the great guys. Yep. But I think that a guy like that. Is a like an interesting sort of a test ground. I mean, first of all, for the the public's just, I mean, just for credibility. I mean, you're you're talking about a guy who has no amateur wrestling bouts, no amateur karate bouts, no amateur kickboxing bouts, no amateur boxing bouts, no sumo, nothing, just pro wrestling. Yep. Which is you know entertainment. So he's some sort of an athlete. He looks like he's in good shape. Done a little jujitsu training. I mean, I don't know how much. He wears a white belt. I mean, that ain't good. Nope. And he's <laughs> he's getting in there. He's going to fight in the UFC. And a lot of people have issues with it. I mean, John Jones said he hopes he gets knocked out. You know? And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that find Ben Askren pissed as all hell with a good right to be. And he's going to be coaching him now. Yeah, absolutely a yeah. good right to be. Yeah. I mean, Ben, you know, they were saying Ben Askren doesn't have enough experience. And the UFC hires a zero and zero guy to fight in the fucking UFC. And against who, though? Another guy that they're going to handpick for that zero yeah. and zero guy who also doesn't belong in the UFC, which is going to be really fascinating. I mean, yeah. How do they make a compelling match for CM Punk? I, I think him by himself is that compelling. He has such a draw 
and that people want to see him come out of character who this real guy is, you know, and they want, yeah. hey, is he, you know, in the WWE, he was a straight edge guy who was, you know, he had, uh, you know, iron balls and blah, 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 blah. Is he really that way? Yeah. You know, does he show up in the octagon? Is he scared? Is he afraid to throw a punch? Does he, you know, leaning back with his chin held high? Does he get demolished or does he fight hard? You know, as if he tests positive for fucking PEDs. Oh, <laughs> Oh, it, it bra- Twitter, Twitter would absolutely just break. It would be hilarious. It would be hilarious. It would be Cosby-esque. <laughs> it, would, it would. You know, and, and he's an extremely intelligent guy. Yeah, he's very when smart When you talk guy. to me, very bright guy, and, and he's on this journey, and you can't fault him. He no. just said I wanted to fight. No. He, you can't yeah. fault him that the, that the organizations go and sign him. And, 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 and I, I get, you know, where they're going with it as well. But the good thing for him, and when I spoke to him actually, you know, this past weekend— there's no timeline for him. He can go train as long as he wants to train. And when his coach, when Duke says he's ready, that's when they get to match him up. What I want to know is at what point do they start getting impatient, tapping their toes, saying, hey, look, it's been eight months. Are you ready to fight yet or not? Right. With you know? UFC. With yeah. Point is, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, as long as he does that, I mean, that's a smart thing to do. I'm, I've always said that if Brock Lesnar did that, he would have been one of the greatest champions of all time. If Brock Lesnar went to a Matt Hume or a Farasa hobby type dude and had someone just analyze his, his physical movements and mm. everything, you're going to do everything half speed for, for, for fucking months. Yeah. I want, when I throw a kick, I want your knee to come up and I want you to check it. When you throw a left hook, I want a right leg kick just to be coming out on instinct. When someone throws a punch, I want you instantly to roll with it. I want to be it to be a part of your anatomy. I yeah. want to be a part of your DNA. Drillers are killers. And it never became that with no. that guy. He was just this fucking brute force super athlete. It's like... It was like someone giving you a Corvette ZR1 but never teaching you how to drive. Yeah. And you get on the fucking highway and you got a few moves. You know how to turn left and you know how to turn right. And for most cars, it's going to be enough yep. to beat them. But then you get this Kane Velasquez car that knows how to do everything. And you're like, ah, fuck. Dude, that's an evil car. It's an evil car. That's a scary car. After John beat Daniel Cormier, you know, and then he said he would fight Kane in a heartbeat, boy, did I get excited about that fight. <sighs> I'm excited about that fight as much as I'm excited about a Gustafson rematch or a Rumble-Johnson fight. Almost yeah. depends on what happens in the Gustafson-Rumble-Johnson fight. If Gustafson knocks out Rumble-Johnson or if Rumble-Johnson knocks out Gustafson, if one of those guys finishes the other guy in a very definitive way, then I want to see that fight. Yeah. But until Absolutely. that, John versus Kane would be fucking crazy it, too. It, you know, how long Kane's been out over a year. Mm-hmm. How does he – I mean – you, we expect because he was so dominant that he he comes back true to form. But you got to wonder, does he? I mean, that's a, he's had a lot of injuries, mm-hmm. and and certainly, you know, Verdum, he he gets overlooked time and time again. I mean, oh, yeah. I certainly did when he fought Travis Brown. I thought Travis Brown was going to have a lot more success. Man, Verdum, I mean, he made, he made him look he made him look mediocre. How about that double jab? Where the fuck did he develop that fucking Lennox Lewis style yeah. double jab? Yeah. I mean, he looked great standing up. I mean, his stand-up has improved in a really dramatic fashion. Knocking out Mark Hunt with a fucking flying knee. Like, what? You know, you know, Rafael Cordero got a lot of love from the past guys he's trained. But honestly, some of his best work has been recently. Yeah. What he's done with Verdum, what he's done with Rafael Dos Anjos. Yeah. I mean, he's he's starting to bring up, um, son of a gun, I'm, I'm missing... Um, 
Dariush, Benil Dariush as well, who's who's undefeated in the UFC so far, has had some very good fights, who's, who's a black belt. He's a grappler that now is turned striker and being successful. He's starting to produce guys that shouldn't be good strikers and really showing some depth in the technique too. Not the, the crazy shoot box style people were accustomed to, right. but... A lot of traps, trickery, setup, you know, mm-hmm. very technical, it, it, lots of volume striking with a lot of depth to it, different looks, different styles. And Cordero, you can't get a nicer guy. And that's the other thing is that these, these fighters have this bond with him because he's such a lovable guy. He's so great. They want to win for him. Yeah. A lot like the Ray Longo thing. Like, they, they love Ray Longo. They want, they, they want that guy there for them. They want to make that guy happen. Rafael is just such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy and, you know, was a great fighter himself, yep. really understands. And really becoming a part of, or because he's a part of Shoot to Box, the history of MMA, I mean, he's like, he's legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Where, where that comes from. Imagine calling a fight and having Ray Longo come in for a fight and grab a headset. Yeah. <laughs> I think Ray Longo and Matt Serra should have their own fucking reality show. I agree. Just those two guys cornering fighters. It would be, it would be absolutely <laughs> incredible. Absolutely, they're hilarious, oh. and they're like the, my favorite kind of East Coast guys. You know, yeah, that that East Coast sense of humor, humble, self-deprecating. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they're 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 great human. I mean, I spent uh, a week in Fort Hood with Matt Serdar and one of the fight for the troops. I mean, you couldn't find a funnier guy. I mean, the whole time Dana's texting him, telling him how fat he is, <laughs> and then we go to we go to who's the big puppet guy in Vegas. Terry Fader. Yeah. We get Dana gets his front row tickets to this Terry Fader show. And so Sarah's texting Dana, look, I may have put on some weight, but I, I you know, I sure as hell didn't ask for tickets to a puppet show, Dana. You know, I'm 30 some <laughs> years old. I could have passed on it. I could have seen this by staying home with my kids. Thanks for nothing. You know. That's funny. Yeah, they're, they're, he's fucking hilarious. They're funny guys, man. That East Coast mentality, that, that there's a there's, there's just a different sort of sense of humor yeah. that comes out of Long Island. Yeah. Hey, this fucking guy over here. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> they're funny, man. Listen, man, we're out of time. We did just did three hours. Holy shit. You're, you're the first ever HD podcast we ever did. Uh, how many gigs is this going to be? Is it too big for Ustream? We'll, we'll see what this happens, but you're the first one. Uh, listen, man, run for president, please. Huh. You gonna run? You no. gonna do it eventually? Maybe. No? Ah, maybe, maybe. Maybe one day if I get pissed off Maybe, enough. ladies and gentlemen. I think you could win. I'll get behind you. I'm not gonna be like a vice president or anything, but I'll be a, uh, Oh, no, no, no. You, Tate Fletcher, I got a whole bunch of people that gotta come in the cabinet. Yeah, I don't think you want Tate in your <laughs> fucking cabinet. Let me tell you some stories. I know. <laughs> you wanna talk about skeletons. Both Ooh. of us have some fucking graveyards. Uh, listen, thank you very much, man. And please, do your own podcast. You'd be fucking fantastic at it. I appreciate please. everything, Joe. Thanks do for it, having Brian me, Do it, Brian Stan. You're, I... you're awesome at commentary. You're a great fighter. You're a great dude. You're very intelligent. You're a great speaker. You'd be awesome at this. I mean, I, I'm definitely looking into do it. And, you know, hey, if, if some of the listeners here enjoyed me, you guys let me know if, if you think it would be worth listening to. Yeah, and if you didn't, keep your fucking mouth shut, all right? <laughs> Dirty bitches. Send Ray Longo to your house. Yeah. Uh, Brian Stan on Twitter. S-T-A-N-N. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, fuckers. We'll see you soon.